Ready? Let's do it. All right. Welcome back to the Key in the Lake podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now with the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, it's Jake, coming live from my basement, also known as the Key in the Lake International Recording Studios. And back from his European travels is the one and only Callum J. O'Donnell. You! I'm back. How's Italy? Fantastic. How's home? Recommend it. Home was incredible. Mm, no one really, cares. really good. It's the least I've drank on a on a on a European trip in a long time because I was just too busy enjoying myself, going places, driving places, all that sort of thing. Mm, so I've come back with a my liver's in t- intact shape, <laughs> just in time for a fantastic whiskey tasting. That and for the enjoyable fall of O and D. Oh yes, I can't wait. Yeah, it sounds so excited. Vegas next week for a company conference, and it's literally the last thing I want to do. <laughs> I, I took off the month of uh, August from drinking. I usually take oh. off August. I call August, um, what do I call? Oh, austere August. Austere August. Austere. Yeah, I try not to say anything, you know, firm, like there'll be no drinking. And the, the, <laughs> period. <laughs> you don't want to say off it for August because yeah, you know it, that you're going to you know be on it at some stage. I, I started doing, and I also hate dry January. Yeah. I call it refrainuary. Mm. Mm. Because dry, nothing, there's, I mean, nothing. You're not going to drink any water? No. <laughs> it just sounds sad. And I think it's, re- I'm going to refrain. But I think it was one, it was, I don't know, like four years ago, I was doing refrainuary. And a friend of mine who's a sommelier was, I was in New York and he said, hey, let's meet up. I want to buy you my new favorite bottle of champagne. Oh, God. Only an asshole would say in that moment. <laughs> and he knew. No, he didn't know. Yeah, he knew. No, he didn't. There was something in his inner core that knew. No, because he's, if you know Raj, he's always going to try to buy you a nice bottle of champagne. But I knew, first of all, that I wanted to try that champagne. And second of all, that's just, who wants to say that? Oh, I'd love to. Was it good champagne? It was incredible. There you go. I mean, it was incredible. So that's why I call it refrainuary. Yeah. And austere August. I'm, I'm not saying I'm not drinking a single drop. I'm just saying I will do my best but when situations arise mm-hmm. where the moment you would be for. foolish and it would be ridiculous to to abstain then i'm gonna step Pe- up. people are just gonna take this and run with it <laughs> that people are gonna take this they're gonna be like yeah. well i'm not abstaining from alcohol anymore however i am refraining i'm yes. refraining, yeah. refraining. I now, if somebody good. offers me a bottle of nice champagne <laughs> i'm taking it don't be an asshole no. <laughs> don't be don't, an asshole. don't don't make other people uncomfortable yeah, you know, like it's weird to show up at someone else's house and then all of a sudden, and they prepare a nice dinner for you. Either, just don't accept the dinner invitation, or be you... prepared to say that's the one night that I'll be drinking this January. Like that's fine. <laughs> so, are we going to go down uh, the veganism uh, uh, rabbit hole right now, too? Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We'll be here all night <laughs> yeah. or all day, right? Don't do it. As a guy who did it for a year and then was a vegetarian for six years, mm. I regret all six years of them now looking back on it. You can't get those years back. No. Well, the creator of Austere <laughs> August is uh, Sean Joseph from Pinhook. Sorry. I, I totally, I totally <laughs> jumped in. Uh, I love it. I love we, it. We also have Chris Blantner, the urban bourbonist, with us uh, this morning afternoon um, on a beautiful September day already. Oh, so strange. Are we drinking in September? Hell yeah. Okay. Hell yeah. Could go there. It's certainly September. It's it's Bourbon Heritage Month. Yes. (laughs) Gotta play to the crowds. That's right. It's like we try doing that, and then I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna write a bunch of stuff about it. We're gonna record a bunch of podcasts about it. Then I'm like, yeah, one week goes by, and can I ask you though, genuinely? Yeah. Is there 
everything has a day now. Right. Literally. Yep. Every like there's a whiskey sour day as I learned recently. Uh yeah. I but know. does but other than when it comes to food or beverage, mm-hmm. does anyone else have a month? I feel like in Black France, History Month. I, <laughs> hey, it's real. Dude, food and I beverage. Did, I said food and, I said, food and beverage. I mean, come on. <laughs> I said food and beverage. There's got to be a barbecue month or something. But I don't, I'm not aware of another month in the United no. States of America. I feel like, oh, yeah, I was going to say, I think France has a champagne month. As they should. Yes, yeah. th- that makes sense. Right. Is it, though, isn't it really not really a national bourbon heritage month didn't it start <laughs> not, as yeah, you mean not declared by I know someone it, real yes it was, it was a kentucky like, thing it was a kentucky and then it was thing, kind yeah, of really. it kind of expanded everyone kind of grabbed a hold of kentucky's yeah. declaration yeah i think like 15 which was years i think ago, a, a one-time holiday? declaration oh got it and then it became like a big thing guys... i could have this wrong but i think that's the general backstory you know you've you guys have given me what I would like to think is my best marketing idea of 2022. Oh, God. All right. But I can't. Well, I, I think we need a year to plan for it. Mm. October is International Pinhook Bourbon Month. Hey. Why not? Why don't just stop me? Why not just make, make it? the declaration? Make why not the just, declaration? Why not, but it's like, you know what? Like, why not? And yeah. you could do Who the bottles cares? as like trick or treats. There yes. you go. Like, it's a, we, we'll, we'll play off our Halloween orange. Absolutely. You know, actually, we could do. Oh, you the know, elephant, what we do? the barrel Look at picks. This. Yep. Candy corn. Candy corn. There you go. There you go. Well, and you my, put the bottles together, and there's a candy corn shape on the inside. We'll do the candy. This is big. Yeah. Throw this in the. Could, uh, this could be big. One of the um, special releases that has the black wax. Oh, there, oh, full candy corn. Yeah, you got the full candy corn, full Halloween. Why not just have a pinhook H two, July through December? It's just pinhook H two, <laughs> like a, a whole quarter. All the great ideas. Q four now. We've the Q four of every year is an international. Oh, no. no, the dog found the squeaky toy. The oh, one squeaky no. toy. Don't do it. Ignore that one, Lola. You're gonna have to be abandoned or. Something. Don't make us take you up the stairs, Lola. You've yeah. done so well. Yeah. Oh, no. That'd be awesome. You could do like an all-black label. Yeah. Some orange tones to it. Okay. It's everyone cool. here has to commit, though, that they're not allowed to <laughs> declare. No, no, no. That no one else can declare, you know, For any other brands word. listening, yeah. <laughs> or you can have a different month, but I'm claiming October. We're October, yes. in, we're October in Australia. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, I don't know. The whole social media holiday thing, I don't really get yeah. it or understand it. It is one of those things, Bourbon Heritage Month, that I kind of want to partake in. And like I said, after a week, I'm like, I'll just go back to drinking scotch like I did last night for <laughs> two, three hours. And you're, guess- you're bringing up what I find is such a fascinating thing with social media, which is that, you know, on the one hand, maybe the argument is it does perform well, meaning mm. if it's Labor Day mm-hmm. and I happen to really like to grill and smoke things, mm-hmm. it is my duty to do a barbecue Labor Day grilling post because that's what the world wants it's and what the that's world needs. what Instagram wants. But my, my personal point of view which i think actually has a lot to do with pinhook in the end is i don't want to do what everyone else is doing so i'm actually going to go out of my way to not yeah do barbecue on memorial day and Labor I'm always day. A or, or july 4th yeah or maybe just nothing right i'm just gonna avoid i'm just not gonna 
and I, I'm not saying that I, that's not a critique of the people who do. I just, it's just my personal reaction is like, is that what everybody wants? Is that you, it's been declared, like, it's you want to see a same thing over and it's over the again. day of love. Yeah. Therefore you need to do your Valentine's day. I always feel like people that put that stuff out on social media, like, oh, I love my wife, blah, 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 on this day. Like, on their anniversary, they probably have the worst relationships, too. When they write a one long thing a year about, like, the person that they love. And like, what happened to the other 364 days yeah. of your life? You it's know? like, you know what? My, my wife always asks me, you never take photos of me anymore. I'm like, because I can know that I love you every single day without posting it on the internet. Yes. Well, that's why, and then I do... I don't think she believes me. I think <laughs> that I don't care about birthdays. For for me though, the anniversary is one that I do post, but then I always try to do something more. I don't declare my love for my wife. Mm. I'm more like, oh my god, I'm shocked we made it another year. <laughs> She's put up with me for all this time. Right. Not even That's that. Kind of all I think. Not even that. I'm just more like, oh my god, like I can't believe it. Like we made it. Nineteen years. Nineteen years. Congrats. I've been married. Yeah. As the only uh, non-married person, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I love a lot of women all day, every day, all year, you know? Uh, no, nah, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Dig out, cut out! No, um, yeah, I think, just back to the social media point, you know, I was reading the other day that there's a lot of um, a lot of teens with that are on TikTok mm. are getting really apathetic about their creative abilities because yeah. basically, you know, a, a teen will watch TikTok and they, or they, they are really passionate about music, okay? Mm-hmm. And then they'll see someone on TikTok that's doing their skill but mm. leagues and bounds ahead of where and they're they like, are. I'll never. So it makes you. It's almost better not to see. Yeah, and I think that like, the highest level. I think it's then, only a matter of time before we start. To, people are just going to start abstaining, abstaining. You know what's really? So this is my insight because I have I have three kids, but a fourteen year old daughter. Where it's the most clear because she she's a little not super into social media, but she does this stuff. Her and her friends, in that I think it's really fun to see, and I don't know where it's going to go all of their photos are intentionally weird Mm -hmm. so they always try to make themselves look ugly for lack of a better word so they'll do like the 0.5 yeah they'll do the 0.5 thing and then they'll like turn their heads askew and it makes their nose so they're kind of rebelling Mm. against the sort of the idea of this post where you're you're doing the selfie in the mirror and you're turning in a certain way to try to you know Eight accentuate filters. all of your and the filters and the whole yeah. thing and they're going the other way and all of their stuff and actually I she just I'm sure you guys know about this because I'm I'm not social media savvy but the the um, I think it's called um, not reels be real be real yeah be real and they they'll is. send each other it's all like in the moment but it's all. The whole thing is to send a photo without all of the bits and but pieces. But the irony, yeah. of course, is that Instagram noticed the trend right. of people wanting to be real and then created a platform to excite. So, I mean, Zuckerberg. that's, that's you know, they're, they're, they're always ahead of the game. But, yeah, you can't uh, really win that way. You can't win. But it is, I, I just love the fact that they always try to make themselves look ugly. I think it's really funny. That's funny. And so hopefully that's... Next, we're going to have whiskeys that deliberately make themselves look shite or just taste bad yeah <laughs> well and sell it for like 150 bucks <laughs> have wait you... a minute oh wait we're already there <laughs> so our our distributor in louisiana has a product a vodka and it's really it this will sound dumb but it does crack me up it's called taste like chicken <laughs> it's called TLC, right? I think it's really funny because, of course, the idea of vodka is that they all taste the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and it just has a really funny label yeah. and it's super cheap. I mean, I've never looked into the economics, but can't keep it on the shelf. How cheap should could vodka be and you still make money? Like if your your cost I heard once, I don't know if this this probably isn't the case in the current times, mm-hmm. but I remember back in the day someone saying the all-in cost of Old Crow, Jim Beam, mm-hmm. right, three-year-old, one liter is a dollar. Which makes sense to me because if I think about, I know what glass costs and yeah, I know what yeah. juice costs. And if I think about what is your cost. It's plastic too, right? No, well, no, the liter was glass, at least the one we were using mm. at the restaurant. But you're all in, like, I would totally buy that. I would think that at the scale of Jim Beam, yeah. Yeah. cost of goods, cost of distillate. That doesn't have taxis and everything though involved when you're, when you're coming. I don't think, I don't know if they're factoring in the excise tax, but I just mean pure cost of goods, cost of juice, cost of glass, yeah. cost of bottling. It, it would make sense to me because, um, yeah, I don't think, I think it costs, my, this was always my the number I had in my head. I think your actual cost of juice for new make would be about $30 for a 53-gallon barrel. So, now the barrel costs have gone up, but right, I think yeah. that, and I don't know at Jim Beam's scale, you know, you're buying commoditized grain and you're just adding water, you know, so <laughs> what is, and you're like, there's not, it's cheap. So, yeah. It's a super cheap product. And the other thing that no one really thinks about, we pay for age mm-hmm. because we think it makes a more complex product, which it does. Mm-hmm. But the cost of aging, other than the fact that you're sitting on capital, is maybe $4 per barrel per year for Pinhook. So it would be way less for Jim Beam. And I'm talking about basically warehousing plus insurance. Yeah, right. So, so the carrying costs are nothing. But they also own the land too. So And they own the land. Yeah, they, yeah so their economics are awesome. So, but so even for a brand that's paying the most, yeah. if, I, if I give you a seven-year barrel, it's my cost of the barrel plus seven times four. Like it hasn't yeah. cost me anything <laughs> other than opportunity cost because I could have taken that money and invested and in And a little bit Amazon of angel stock. share as well. But an angel share, sure. But so yes, in, fair point. It, and so I work with a bunch of different scotches and some American whiskeys yep. um, with Pernod Ricard. Mm-hmm. And we have- Never um, heard of it. In, just <laughs> one of those weird ones. And in, in, uh, actually it's funny because not a lot of people outside of the industry have heard of it, which is a weird yeah, one. No, that is know, a no one knows Pernod yeah, Ricard. That is kind of the point. Um, we, behind closed doors, we have a, a pyramid. And it's, uh, mm. we'll call it the, for the sake of argument, we'll call it the margins pyramid. Mm. Yeah. And Aberlauer, who I used to work with exclusively, yeah, they were second highest on this pyramid. And on the bottom, and basically the pyramid says- Second that, highest in terms of most expensive. Uh, yeah, or the yeah, biggest yeah. margin you could make on Aberlauer. Oh, the oh, biggest, biggest margin. margin. So, yeah, 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 now, yeah. the reason for that is, yes. and I, I remember seeing this the first time. The first time that I looked at the pyramid, you sell one case of Aberlauer 12, and I think it's something like 24 cases of absolute vodka or 48 Correct. cases of absolute vodka. Okay. It's around that. Yep. And I remember thinking about it and thinking about it. And I was like, how can that be? Mm-hmm. And it's like you say, the only the only real difference there is that one comes off the still and yeah. just goes straight into the bottle. There's yeah. no aging. There's no nothing. Mm-hmm. And then Aberlauer, you know, we get to charge this massive premium for it. Because like you say, obviously the, the aging does make it more complex and it does make it deeper and more whatever. But, you know, it, that's 
there's, there's also this this part of the storage that mm. we're paying for, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's why we charge that extra extra money. You know what you're reminding me of when I was running beverage programs, and this isn't, I mean, this is, this is hardly groundbreaking thinking, but what occurred to me was I had a bunch of friends who had really old wine that they were willing to consign me. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't paying for the wine until I sold it, right? And someone would sell me some really cool bottle for $70 or $100, whatever it is. The standard thinking in the industry is that you should multiply it by three for for restaurants, right? So if I buy, pay 100 I sell it for 300 What occurred to me was, how many $4 Budweiser's do I need to sell <laughs> to make 100 bucks? And so I would say, well, I'm not paying for it till I sell it. I'm making so much more money, even at a quote unquote poor margin. So I'm just going to sell this $100 1978 coat roti for $200. Hmm. And someone's going to feel excited because they feel like it's a value. They're going to get to access a product that they would feel like normally would be $300. I mean, that's a tipping point. I would think mm-hmm. if you saw a really cool wine with age on it on a list for 200 bucks and you felt like splurging, maybe you're going to pull the trigger, but $300 is a different conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're letting people try something. And I also, I don't care that my margin is 50% and my margin on Budweiser is 18%. Yeah. I have to sell a hundred Budweiser's, you know, or 50 Budweiser, whatever it is to make a hundred dollars where I can just sell one bottle of this and make a hundred dollars. And so it's good to get out of the sort of standard thinking mm-hmm. about margin and, and understand, you know, but uh, but going back to Aqualor, right? It does deliver. Yeah, I mean it does. Eh, I, right. Eh. <laughs> or or let's say sorry, <laughs> sorry. Aged. I don't drink a lot of scotch. Aged product is capable of delivering yes, in a way for sure. Like a a twelve year old whiskey. Don't listen to these assholes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it definitely does deliver. Okay. Okay. So keep me out uh, of this. Uh, yeah. uh, a twelve year old. it delivers. It uh, delivers. Grandma. A twelve year old whiskey eight-year-old whiskey whatever is capable of delivering yeah. in a way that a three-year-old irrespective right. of what it costs you yeah. to to get it there um and that's what you're in theory you pay for in well, beverage so interesting right? with scotch too because a lot of distillers avalar for example is anonymous or famous for having all this whiskey from oloroso sherry casks and using ex-bourbon casks blending yep. them together yep. and i was at a scotch tasting last night and we were trying to guess what we were tasting yep and there was a ex bourbon um, seven year old Glen, eight year old Glen Farkless on there, yeah. and we didn't know we were tasting. I'm like, this has Glen Farkless written all over it, and yeah. someone's like, there's no sherry note to it though. Mm-hmm. They're, they're also famous for using sherry casks too. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, but they do have bourbon casks, and we are trying to taste whiskey that's different and weird. Right. So I thought this probably is Glen Farkless because it had this briny, bright note to it that I always get from from Glen Farkless, and you're thinking. Now we have the complexity of storytelling, the complexity of barrel aging, but also 100, 200 years with these distilleries making this product and defining themselves. And then you get that market value out of it too. Then you have a brand new brand that we have sitting in front of us like with Pinhook that's getting value out of it and trying to grow it in a very short amount of time and then competing in price range with those brands. Yeah, which is a challenge. By the way, I think it's worth saying, because I think about this a lot, I try to think of an analogy... I always think about food because I was in restaurants and I like to cook. Bourbon to me is roast chicken. Okay. Right? It's simple by definition and by law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a simple product. And I think anyone who's going to try to argue that bourbon is more complex or interesting than scotch is lying or wrong. One, Like either or. Yeah. Right? It's just not capable of it. But 
to me, the what makes bourbon amazing is that it's roast chicken. And the reason I like the analogy is, sure, you can brine it and you can do all sorts of things. But at face value, you take a chicken mm-hmm. and you season it with salt and pepper and you throw it in an oven. And if executed well, it's superb. It's, delicious. it's superb, yes. not complex. Like you wouldn't compare it to lamb or right. It's it's very mm-hmm. it's in a very narrow range, mm-hmm. but you might find it to be the most satisfying thing. And that's how I think about bourbon. I'm not I don't have any illusions about what bourbon is capable of. I like as someone who likes to cook, mm-hmm. you know, it's sometimes, you know, perfectly frying an egg or perfectly poaching an egg and perfectly seizing it is as fun and challenging as I worked in really fancy restaurants. I think fancy restaurants in a way you can hide behind the sauces and mm-hmm. you can hide behind all of the seven different garnishes, which took a bunch of externs a very long time to, you know, poke a time. I mean, I worked at a restaurant where people had to trim the top of an egg so that they could put a truffle custard in it. And of course that, that was very, very difficult and time consuming. Um, is that worth it? I mean, that cust, I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the million dollar question. If you're sitting at per se, and they bring out this truffled egg custard in a shell mm-hmm. with this perfect potato chip in it. And they sandwiched the chip with a truffle mm. in between and then fried the chip. So you're looking at this perfectly rectangular thing with a truffle in it. Yep. And it's the most delicious, perfect custard you've ever had. And the fact that it's like in a shell sitting in a little shell holder yeah. on a plate with an underliner <laughs> and you're drinking some beautiful wine that was recommended to pair with your mm-hmm. thing yeah, in that moment i think you're probably yeah it's thinking not... it's one of the best things you've ever had but there are other moments where you would say that the fried chicken or yeah. the roast chicken right. is the, the best experience thing has had. to be part of it too right 100 you know? it's yeah. also not pop and circumstance after that when the execution pays off yes and it's delicious you have to deliver yeah exactly you have to deliver because there's plenty of michelin restaurants in this city that they make a plate look very inviting and enticing and then you taste it you're like oh that's fine and it's not very filling it's not rewarding to what it looks like visually to then how it actually hits your palate and interacts you're you're to me you're hitting the ultimate nail on the head and i would i used to think about this a lot more when i was in restaurants but delicious is delicious right Mm. now some people don't like raw oysters if that's not your thing you know, so be it. Um, Losers. <laughs> you're missing out. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's how I would always think about it with the chefs. It's like, yeah, we're talking about new dish on the menu, whatever. Yeah. Be creative, of course, you know, by all means, but there's no, you know, being creative for the sake of creativity or being different for the sake of being different mm-hmm. is pointless. If it doesn't deliver, actual deliciousness and by the way i think that that's i mean i think that's relevant to the current bourbon industry Mm. where Mm. in an effort to stand out i would say people are delivering a lot of not delicious things because they want to be different and i think in the end and i think and we talked i think we talked about this last time i personally am very anti uh barrel finishes Mm -hmm. Because I think you're just making a cocktail. Yeah. And I think you're hiding yeah. the whiskey. And I, in the same way, even though I enjoy an IPA, think about it this way to me, right? If you want 
to see if someone's good at making beer, you taste their Pilsner. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. And when you, I, I, to me, the biggest offender of late, I really, and I, I mean, what, whatever, take it. Someone's going to say, maybe it's sour grapes or maybe I just wish I had done it first. I, I really don't like the toasted shit at all, <laughs> at all. I think it could be, I would be interested in experimenting with it as a blending component. Like if it was 5% of a blend or 10% yeah, of the yeah. blend, I taste that stuff. And it, to me is the IPA of, you know, there are people making beer in new Orleans. That's terrible, but their IPAs taste pretty good because once the IBUs are high enough, yep. you're just hiding the lack of quality mm -hmm. in the beer making. So you're talking about toasted barrels that are just straight up in a toasted barrel yeah. and then released. I just think that's, I just, I taste it. And I'm just like, yeah, it's just, someone just whacked this I think it's like perfectly a good whiskey with a giant oak stick. Yeah. And I think it's, I think in hindsight, uh, this is my hope anyway. When, when California wine first came to prominence in the 1970s, the style of winemaking was very akin to Bordeaux mm -hmm. and Burgundy. And people were trying to make refined, balanced product. And then we went through a period of time where, and it's not, surely his fault and if anyone wants to read a, a good book i would say read uh the emperor of wine about robert parker hmm. because what you come to understand is it's not his fault right people used him yeah. as a tool to promote their wines and he had a specific palate but the the parkerization of wine as people will say and the tyranny of one palate <laughs> was this idea that big overripe over oaked intense powerful wines became the style mm. and and that people who didn't even want to make wine that way felt that they had to make mm. wine that way and now i would argue that that's we all have choices even if we're in a business um you still have something called integrity i think but yeah. they made wine to suit his palate because they knew mm. that his palate bent in a direction and if you could make wines that suited that. suited that palette, you would get the scores and the scores would lead to sales and the sales would lead and also lead to, you know, brand recognition, yeah. Yeah. PR, whatever. But California's backed off of that. Mm. There are still wines in that style, but California, the, the pendulum has swung the other way and people are trying to make wines that more speak to a sense of place, have, you know, terroir um, and aren't over the top. I would like to think that and I, and I like high proof whiskey as well but i would like to think that this age of over oaking double barreling toasted finishes i mean finishes period that make no sense you know the the whole reason you're supposed to put a finish on a barrel is because the whiskey is old and it's lost its fruit and it's become a hollow shell and that's what happens to wine if you taste wine that's past its peak all you get are the secondary and tertiary notes of wood and spice and earth but the fruit is gone and people say oh it lost all its fruit the fruit has fallen out and so that's why you're supposed to finish um whiskey right is mm -hmm. because the fruit has dropped out the mm -hmm. whiskey's old and now it's all just about wood notes yep so you need to reintroduce fruit. How do you reintroduce fruit? Well, let's let's take this whiskey that wouldn't taste good on its own. But what is the point of a three to four year old whiskey being aged 
it, it doesn't serve a purpose. Right. Except, I would argue, and I would love to have an argument, well, anyone here, by all means, like we could duke it out. But for someone who's doing it, I would say, but what's the point? Like, I know it sells, but you're not, you're masking, you're not, it's not additive. It's actually subtractive. Right? Are, you even, so, are you even helping your brand? Yeah. At, at the long well, end? that's, a, I mean, that I think is an interesting question too, but. I, I agree, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yeah, Ooh, go ahead. Because Let's, do it. Let's do it. Come on, um, Keanu. So I look at that conversation and I think like, I totally agree from like the perfect, you know, in the utopian society yeah. or utopian whiskey industry. Yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. But, um like you know it sells that was the most important thing that you said and mm. i think at the end of the day like Correct. a lot of these people are starting these these distilleries yep and they say gotta they, find a way they gotta find a way man and say they get to say they they have a couple of goes at distillation and then maturation which we all know is like a really 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 tough thing to get right yeah so they get a couple of goes at that and they do it and maybe they've had a couple of barrels that do that are really really tasty and then the rest of the other 10 barrels or however many barrels they've done just don't quite cut it you know if i'm in that position and i'm staring down the barrel of the gun i'm going to finish one of my whiskeys as well because yeah. it's a quick way out and like you said yourself it sells you know and i think it's both though right so what you're saying i i agree with what you're saying from the standpoint is i think i had a conversation with someone who will remain nameless about a brand that will remain nameless, <laughs> but basically saying these guys are not yet making good whiskey. Therefore they have to do the finishes mm -hmm. to hide mm. the lack of quality in the distillate. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's, that's pragmatic. And I would say a hundred percent. Yeah. But I think if you take, let's just use MGP cause it's the easiest example. They make really good whiskey. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you take a three or four year old rye bourbon, whatever from MGP, and you throw stuff at it, you're not hiding anything. We already know they make good whiskey. Then you're just doing it because you see an opportunity, mm. which is like, oh, this category is hot. Therefore, I'm going to make that thing. And I don't, I don't want to. I'm not trying to put myself uh, or Pinnock on some sort of pedestal. Um, we do oh, that. We, we do that, that for you. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> but that's not why I got into this. I got into it for the opposite reason. I got into it from the perspective that I think, frankly, all of us probably share, which is I did not work at a distillery. I worked in restaurants and I had a bourbon bar and I was around bourbon all the time. Yeah. And I saw a lot of things that I didn't like. Yeah. And I had a perspective on what I, what, at least to me, and someone could, of course, like pick it apart, which is fine. But at least from my perspective, the goal was where's the, where's the integrity of transparency in, in, mm -hmm. which is even built into the name Pinhook, you know, buying and selling, um, <laughs> buying and selling, uh, buying and selling barrels, being transparent about that, being transparent about the age and basically saying, we're going to be transparent about yeah. everything. And there are no made up stories. Mm -hmm. There's just what actually happened and there's no subterfuge and, we're just being straightforward and to me what goes along with that would be i don't care if toasted barrels are the hottest category and if pinhook put out a toasted whatever that would no doubt be an easy sell i'm not going to do it because i don't like it mm -hmm. and so that's and and on a, I, again i'm not trying to be on can i say high horse um <laughs> but like whatever i'm not going to get on the i'm not going to pretend like Oh, and therefore we're so special. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I think about it, though. 
Well, so we're not in a tyranny of one palette. We're in a tyranny of a collection of palettes throughout an entire country that's been consumed through these trends. Yes. And then the distillery starting to see what's great or what's selling great and go along with it. Was everything you were doing, well, I guess before that, do you think we'll get out of that as wine did in California? I don't know. You know, you just, what you made me think about, which I find fascinating about bourbon, which is both a pro and a con, people were, were, I would say were, are super intimidated by wine. Yeah. Yes. People are not intimidated by bourbon. People feel like... No, they'll come up and tell you everything about your whiskey. They will tell <laughs> they know. They know it all. And it's never occurred to them, you know... I'm going to, I'll say humble, humble brag. I was in a wine store and someone put a wine in front of me, mm -hmm. blind. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to, and doesn't normally go this way. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, okay. Definitely France. It was white wine. Definitely Rhone. There's something about Marsan Roussan, which are Northern Rhone grapes that have this, it reminds me of uh, if you bit into a lemon seed. Mm. There's a bitterness to it mm. that's also citrus. And I just felt really confident. I'm like, that's where we are. And then it was clearly an aged wine. And there's only one producer in the Northern Rhone who makes white wine that's considered to be like the ultimate pinnacle, which is Chave Hermitage. And so I just called it. I'm like, I'm thinking Chave Hermitage. He's like, boom, you nailed it, right? Guy's blown away. <laughs> he said I was the only one that got even close. And it was hard because it had age on it and it was oxidized or whatever. Huh. I my, had my W set at the beginning yeah. of October. Do you want to do it for me? That'd be great. <laughs> me too, I don't think, I, I, I'll be honest, I think for every hit, there are 20 misses. And I think that's, yeah. you have to be. Do you, just say, do you just say Chave Hermitage every time then? <laughs> it's like eventually someone's going to give me one of these. I should. So I do Glenn Farkless right, right, scotch right. tasting. It's got to be Glenn Farkless. But, what I'll, but I guess my my point is that i could have gotten it well i did get it i could have missed it. it happens a lot but i got it and the getting of it is just the result of tasting a lot of wine over the last 18 years yeah and tasting a lot of food over the last 18 years tasting a lot right it doesn't really occur to most of the people in the bourbon space that they don't have the experience that people in the industry have for whatever reason people are intimidated by wine they, they look at a wine list and they're like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. And there's, but there's Sheer something. volume probably. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something very democratic, which I think is, again, I'm not complaining about it. It's just interesting to me. At uh -huh. the table, you mean? Well, that people feel very, like people are new to it. Mm. With wine, I would just always hear people say, just like, oh, well, I can't tell the difference between it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't, it would be wasted on me. I don't know the difference yeah. between a, a $100 wine and a $10 wine. And yeah. I just don't have the palate for it. With whiskey, people are super confident. Well, <laughs> I think it's, it's partly because, you know, um, we know where Kentucky is. We yeah. know where it's Washington easier. is. We yes. know where, you know, Illinois is. And so it's not from that perspective and you can pronounce all of those things exactly. as well yeah it's you know, accessible like it's yeah. not like yeah, yeah. hermitage or whatever or exactly home, you know yeah and a lot of the words that are on like a wine label or on a wine list it's intimidating yeah you don't even know what they mean well i think it's also subconscious too because people probably know that wine represents region because you look there south africa argentina peru california wherever it might be and then get back to your point chris with the states oh it's just it's just corn. If I know that, I see corn every day if I'm in the Midwest or in certain parts of the country. And you think that's how you make how you make bourbon. It's not too complex where I don't know anything about 
I've never been to Peru. I've never been to yeah. Argentina and seen what the soil looks like over there, but I can relate to bourbon, relate to whiskey because it's always around me, even if it's a subconscious effort upon people in America. But yeah, I can agree a hundred percent how not, I was joking, but not joking at the same time saying people come up and tell everything about your distillery when you're at an event or at a tasting yeah. and you're like, okay, well can I, now can I tell you the truth about it? <laughs> and here's the purpose and intent of around what we're doing as a distillery. But I, I hope at one point, at some point people back off about this high proof craze and all these mm-hmm. finishing crazes that are happening and understand what you're doing with your whiskey why you're doing it your way um, and what other brands will eventually get into as well as they grow up. There's just so many craft brands out there right now that are trying to make a buck and trying to hit or miss deals, which I understand. Like you said, it's pragmatic in that sense, but where are you going to build a foundation of a company if you're just trying to throw things to the wall with different trends that are going on and the next year you're doing something different and the year after that you're like, okay, let's do the wheat thing. Let's do the finishing and whatever wine cast we can get our hands on, not to think about what's inside of the whisk, what went inside of the barrel um, before it was, you know, before he went inside the barrel, how did you distill it? What barrels did you use first off? And then putting it inside of a wine cast with intent to bring some certain flavor to it. That's, that's where you start finding what you're going to do as a company. Um, yeah. When you start thinking about the complexity of everything that goes into distilling, not just about how can I put a flavor profile into it, shock it into flavor, put it on the shelf and sell it. And then will people come back and buy another bottle from you? I, I think one thing with that is to go back to what you, when you were talking about these high-end restaurants, I think one thing that we will see is that, you know, there are people in today's society and there are people that are really, really into their wine, really, really know their wine. Right, and they are going, and they're looking. They'll maybe know. I think it was Robert Parker. You said they'll maybe yeah. know that palate off the top of their head. I think we'll probably start to see as whiskey in the United States matures. Sorry, I used the pun, but as it matures as a as a category more and more, we will see a kind of separation that we saw in Scotch, mm. which is like I don't mean to say church and state, but you've got the church, which are the people that they are like really, really looking at the story and the history yes. and the flavor profile and it's like okay this 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 whiskey was purely made one okay? percent yeah the and one percent right yeah. that's my yeah i make that number up but and that's so, my number I'm, and it's like one so, percent is really in and knows yep. all the shit and, and so they they are really looking at these factors and there will be brands that excel at those factors and then they take advantage of them and mm-hmm. they fly however there is the state the 99 percent if we want if that's the number that we want to use that will probably dwindle or not dwindle but it'll get smaller you know the the church will get bigger you know people will learn more and more about it and that percentage will get bigger but those brands that side of the thing i think that that the not the soulless i don't want to say soulless way of making whiskey but the toasted or i think soulless is nice (laughs) (laughs) so the soulless side of whiskey that that it's literally just following the trends yeah you know and they're maybe they start smoking whiskey or the toasted side of things, or maybe they start mm. throwing berries at it. You know, I mean, who knows? Well, that side will grow because at the end of the day, people are going to say it sells and it's tasty. You know, it makes me think I of have, like, yeah, makes me think of like the screwballs of the world. And no, <laughs> no, like no shade to screwball or no, no. shade to fireball. They have a great product and yeah. it sells really, really well. No, people love it. I just don't think it's whiskey for me. You know, it doesn't yeah. well, whiskey for me. I don't it's think, whiskey. but I also, I mean, I have a question for you guys. Because this, I, I find, to me, I find this, it's the biggest curiosity to me in the world of spirits, is I think that, weirdly, 
in spite of the popularity of bourbon, if you go into a craft establishment, and I don't mean craft whiskey, mm-hmm. I'm just saying it could be a cocktail bar, it could be a restaurant, and they pride themselves on the craft of everything that they do, mm-hmm. and they try to bring in really high-quality products, they geek out on agave, mm-hmm. right? You will not find Patron there, <laughs> right? You will not find any mainstream, I would say, vodka, gin, rum, or tequila. But you will find Bullet. Mm -hmm. And I think, and that's the part that I find fascinating, that Bullet, and I I don't think I, even though I'm a quote-unquote supplier, I think I'm allowed to say this because we're so small and it doesn't matter, is Bullet is Kendall Jackson. Bullet is Patron. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're Cuervo, but they're at least Patron, Mm -hmm. right? And the places that carry it and carry Jack and carry Makers, whatever, philosophically don't carry other brands in that category. Not because Patron sucks. I I mean, you can say that it sucks, but they're not carrying it. They're not carrying it because it's a a commoditized conglomerate product, Mm -hmm. not a... I, I craft is an unfortunate word because it's become kind of hollow and shallow. But you know what craft means to me in a real way is more the full Boutique, word. Maybe well, Boutique. craftsmanship. Yeah. You yeah. actually touch it, yeah. right? Like we, you, you can say that pinhook sucks, and that's fine. It does, but we, t- it does suck. <laughs> but we touch it, right? We're not. We don't need to do two one thousand barrel batches. Yeah, chill filtered. <clears throat> per week to meet global demand right. of a product that's in every airport and every hotel. And, and the way that that product is made is inferior. And even I think Jim Beam, I mean, if you had to talk to someone at Jim Beam, they would have to admit that Booker's or Baker's or Knob Creek is a truer, better expression of what they're capable of than Jim Beam White Label. Yeah, That's not even like if you take a whiskey and you chill filter it, and you drop it to 80 proof that, or I guess you, you would drop it to 80 proof and then chill filter it, but mm-hmm. whatever. When you make that product, it's not super representative of what we all know that whiskey tastes like. Mm-hmm. It is a product made for a purpose. And I, I did start this as a question. I'm genuinely <laughs> curious what you guys think as to why these other categories that I would consider some of these categories to be smaller uh, although tequila is definitely on par with bourbon now, but somehow I think that tequila and mezcal is way more complicated mm. to explain. Well, how how what are the different ways of making it, and what are these diffusers, which apparently are like the size of uh, basketball courts, right. that are finding a inferior way of getting the sugar out of the agave and producing an inferior spirit. the bartenders have all bought into it, but the bartenders and the bartenders, especially the ones that have seen the donkey pulling the wheel, crushing the thing, it changes their lives. They're, they're bought in, in a way. And somehow I think bourbon has been immune to this idea that a lot of the product that the same people who are really, I'm into natural wine. Mm -hmm. I, I only carry gins that no one's ever heard of. You know, that there's, and I'm not saying, I'm saying that with no cynicism. I mean it genuinely. But bullets are no old fashioned. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a bullet. There's a bar I'm thinking of right now. But it's a bullet old fashioned. So, why did, how did bourbon 
slip through the how did bourbon slip through the cracks do you think it's because bourbon the history of bourbon is that it was a large commercial product to begin with i think it kind of was i don't think so i think for whatever reason well actually i don't not for whatever reason until very very recently there were nine distilleries making 95 percent of the product yes and they made it and they still make it in a very specific way. And they were the primary educators. And they had no reason to talk to anybody about the craft <laughs> because they were making a mass market exactly. product yeah. on a huge scale. They're factories. They're factories. Yep. I mean, anyone who's been, you can talk about the romance of Kentucky, but all you need to go do is go to most of the major distilleries and you will realize very quickly that you're in a factory. Yeah, oh, for sure. My grandpa who worked at Beam didn't yeah. describe it with a romantic way. Yeah. He just, what you, way I saw it was a giant boiler room and yeah. like a factory that was dark and dim yeah. and running up and down stairs all day. Just a factory yeah. Yeah. kicking out massive... Uh, you know, volume of, of clear distillate. Yeah. But the road rents of it came behind the conversations right. yeah. and the drinking, sharing it together right. after the fact, and outside so of there. I think that the way that tequila and mezcal got to where they are, it was just education. And so I don't think that you have, so even though, I mean, look. There's a lot of bad is, whiskey ambassadors yeah. out there. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I think I think one of the things just to kind of, as a sort You play, of yeah, note, you're in this market more than. Well, yeah, as a side note, um, to this conversation, I look at mezcal in a completely different light now. I've been working with it for about five since March, or well, yeah, since March. So. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I've noticed recently is that um, bartenders and um, you know even liquor stores and things like that, a lot of them are moving away from Del Maguey. right? Because now Del, so but that because Patron going back, Patron was meant to be the craft, craft. Yep. yeah, and now Patron is the is Budweiser yeah or almost Budweiser right I mean yeah. people still I guess Budweiser is a, a poor analogy because it's perceived as being high quality but the bartenders right that's how they look at it and mm. Del Maguey yes. to your point is now that's not real mezcal yeah so and it was the original mezcal that became popular that right. introduced people to the idea of it just like patron introduced people to the idea that tequila could be a refined mm-hmm. high quality product you but know, now like it, so my question it goes back to where we started will or when will that happen mm-hmm. in bourbon and but because and i think you probably see it with mezcal it's simply i would my point would be first of all i don't think the bartenders are that interested in bourbon Right. Yeah. I don't think it's as geeky and as interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that's one reason. It just doesn't stir the soul in the same way that the some small village and the family I disagree. Okay. I think that it is it is as interesting. Um but the the thing is in America especially, mm. people's general knowledge of bourbon is so much better. Mm. Now, the the thing about being a bartender, of not a, the thing about being anyone that knows something about a specialized subject, you know, your mastermind subject, whatever it is that you go to. One of the cool things about doing that, and as a bartender, one of the cool things about talk, telling someone and educating someone about a spirit or as a brand ambassador is that you go into a room and no one really knows what you're talking about. You know, when I was doing right. this with Scotch, a lot of people would have these preconceived notions of Scotch. Mm. And it was nice to be able to say to them, no, no, actually, that's not how it works. Right now, there's a lot of that in bourbon, but at the same time, there's a lot of history and American history is involved mm. in that. 
And as a bartender, there's so much less that you can bring to the conversation if you've learned a bunch about bourbon mm -hmm. versus like you can you can spend you could spend thirty minutes tomorrow morning learning about mezcal and blow someone's mind mm -hmm. in oh, the sure. bar at night. Don't think you could do the same with bourbon. I think that I think bourbon's just as interesting. The history's just as interesting, but the general American consumer. They show up to the bar and they know where Kentucky is. I agree. They know. But I they would know argue about this bourbon bell and all this sort of thing. You know? But I would argue that the same bartender who could tell you some cool shit about mezcal and tequila, if you said, tell me what chill filtration is hmm. in bourbon and how you think it impacts whiskey, I would say that anyone who cares about bourbon would say that chill filtration is the work of the devil. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. If you care about it, you would just say that's not that's no good for that's not whiskey. good. Yeah, you're removing all the stuff, and the only reason you're doing it, the only reason you're doing it is for appearance sake because you know that if you're going to proof your whiskey, let's say below 96, and you need a shelf stable product that won't fl have flocculation, you have to chill filter it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with the actual flocculation. I mean, they do call it whiskey snot in the industry because it gets these little floating, it's you know, like the coagulants, the, the coagulants, you know, the oils will come together and look like a, like a, a floating loogie in <laughs> someone's soup or something. Right. But there's nothing wrong with it. What a picture. Lovely bit of imagery. Yeah. I'm glad I, I'm glad I was able to dial that up, but there's, there's no purpose. The only purpose is to make the whiskey worse so that it won't have a visually unappealing appearance. Mm -hmm. And the only reason you have to do it in the first place is because you want to proof your whiskey. And I, I'm in, I think would be in agreement with all of you that high proof is not winning. It's not the best thing, yeah. but I don't think, and it's actually interesting tasting this because this, we can talk about this. This is a whole nother story, drinking something from our library series at 90 proof. But I think it loses, I think when the proof gets too low, you lose the essence of bourbon anyway. I think scotch is capable because it is aged longer, mm -hmm. typically in used barrels. It's more capable of being expressive yeah. at a lower proof. I think that bourbon needs more proof to be expressive. And I think this whiskey at 90 proof even though it's probably seven and a half years old, is drinks a little thin mm. the, to me. And also, you know, in Scotch as well, a lot of it was just done because they were like, look, we can put more whiskey into the more bottles. The most money? We can put <laughs> more whiskey honest. into more bottles at the same price mm -hmm. if this is coming down from 51 or 50% 50 or 102, 100, 100 proof, down to, down to 80 Mm -hmm. uh, the only issue is, lads, is that we people don't like the way it looks on the shelf. They're not buying as much of it when it goes a little bit cloudy, or we call it silt in yeah. Scotch. It's got the silt yeah. in it. Um, so let's chill filter it. So it's the, it's the same, you know. I think, but they know it's a worse product. Yeah, hundred percent. Everybody 100%. knows. I think everybody knows. There's a there's a big argument in Scotch, and I don't know if it's the same in bourbon about chill filtration. And it basically is like, you know, that there's a lot of suppliers that are basically saying, well, you don't actually lose a lot of the flavor mo uh, molecules. However, you do lose mouthfeel. And you know, you definitely lose mouthfeel if anyone well, wants to argue about flavor. But I read somewhere where someone said, "Oh, they did a thing with people in the industry, and mm -hmm. no one could tell the difference." I, I would, I would take that test any day of the week. Well, we we did I'd it at our distillery. To. That's where we decided to do a cool filtration. It's not completely chilled, but yeah. it's, it comes down to the average temperature of a Scot a Scottish day, because the temperature in Australia is so massively yep. different than yep. it is anywhere else in the yep. world and we're using very alive wine barrels too so that was part of the play in the filtration yeah i think that would be there are other factors when you're exactly when you're using wine barrels for five years yes. in aging and my argument is that like look 
when I drink a whiskey, I'm not just drinking it because of the taste. I also like a good mouthfeel on it. Yeah. You know, I think that that's that probably the most experience. overlooked yeah. aspect of well, any it's part beverage. Of your experience. It's part of your experience. Texture. So I, take away the texture is more important than pal- the palate for me. Like, how does it feel in your mouth? Take away that, and I think you're taking away a massive part of it. And I think that that's one of the reasons that the scotches now it's it's almost like it's like the you know how gluten-free is this thing in the in the food world this ncf non-chill filtered is that in the scotch world and it's like people are now looking and they're like oh it's it's chill filtered mate i don't want to drink it it's like oh come on you know i mean but Mm -hmm. it's getting to that stage so but i I think think it's i mean i think it's a negative and a positive i think the negative is people should be open to trying anything and not just say i won't drink it because it's chill filtered i think the Mm -hmm. positive is my belief from everything that I've tasted and the pro- we've never chill filtered because we don't even have the capabilities with the dis- distilleries we work with <laughs> that do the bottling. I mean, they, we couldn't do it if we wanted to, we don't want to, but yeah. it's not possible. It's a nice excuse um, though, but it's a nice <laughs> excuse, but we have, we have carbon filtered hmm. and I, I don't think it was helping. I, I think there are people that like carbon filtration cause they think it takes a little, it can soften it. Can you explain that for people? So carbon filtration so there are two ways to filter. One is chill filtration where you would proof and then drop the tank to zero degrees. And then for lack of a better way of explaining it, and I'm, I don't really have the good science anyway, but the oils will coagulate and then at zero degrees and they coagulate and then you pass it through a filter. Molecules slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Pass it through a paper filter, you'll grab it. And now the whiskey is not going to have the silt as you described it. Carbon filtration which doesn't help it carbon filtration won't help with flocculation. Um, but it's another way of getting some of the oils out. And the difference is you can do it in different ratios relative to volume. And basically you're putting something that looks like black flour, which is the carbon into the whiskey. And then in the same way, I think if you, and not totally unrelated, I think if you ever, Fortunately, it's never happened to me, but if you got alcohol poisoning and you went to the hospital, they would give you charcoal because yep. it absorbs alcohol. So the alcohol, so not the alcohol, sorry. In this case, the oils, the lipids, proteins, whatever, will attach themselves to the carbon. And then when you pass it through a filter, so that it's funny, actually, when you see it go through a tube, the whiskey looks black because mm-hmm. it's been filled with, with the carbon and then it passes through and obviously the filter grabs the carbon and it grab, grabs the oils that have attached to it. But because you're not dropping the entire tank to zero, you're not pulling all of it out. And mm. so you can do it in different ratios. And I think Jim Rutledge is the first person that comes to mind that, and mm-hmm. I think Four Roses is a delicious product, but was always a fan of carbon filtration. Mm. And so it is a way of, I think manipulating sounds like a judgmental word, but a, a way of impacting the flavor of the whiskey through filtration. But you can't avoid the fact that you're going to affect the texture yeah because if you think about the oils in there and just Remember giving that, it weight it's going to totally change yeah. i i personally after a long coffee journey and i don't know that my coffee journey is over but now i'm a french press uh, even i was doing pour over but if you do pour over you all know when you look at coffee beans they're oily mm-hmm. and you the oils get caught by the filter and you do get a thinner coffee if you do French press where you're just separating the grounds or the sediment 
from the coffee. You get, oil. You get a richer. I apologize for the pot coffee. <laughs> Not at all. No, 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 no judgment. Uh, I like all, all, all shapes and sizes uh, of coffee. But hey, look, deliciousness is yeah, delicious. Delicious is delicious. Right? There was some sort of you know French uh, vanilla roast or hazelnut or something in there too. So, mm. um, but you, yeah. So that's that's what the filtration does and. I, I mean, obviously, Four Roses uses it to good effect, but... So are you still doing yeah. any carbon We don't do any. No, because I I didn't... T- I had the benefit, right, of... I We do all of our blending at cast strength, mm-hmm. and then depending on the expression, we proof it. Like, our flagship is proof between 97 and 101 because it puts it north of a range where you need to filter in order to avoid flocculation. And I find that the range where not everyone wants to drink an old fashioned and then fall off their bar stool. So (laughs) that's kind of a range where you have enough weight and structure that it's going to stand up in a cocktail. Right. Right. Um, and can handle dilution of ice or, or, you know, mixers, you know, other spirits. Um, and, um, so proof it in that range. And so I, anyway, I had the benefit of tasting it. Obviously everything unfiltered were, blend it cast strength, then prove it down. All of that's unfiltered. And then tasting it after it came off the line, carbon filtered. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, honestly, if I'm being genuine, if you put it to me in a blind tasting, I've never done that. So would I say with 100% confidence that I could tell the difference? I don't know because I've never done it. But my experience was that I didn't think it was, I, I still feel like it was a stripping Mm-hmm. process a bit different yeah. i felt like it was stripping it in some way were you doing that for all your whiskey uh not the not the high proof okay it was just and it was only i think we only did it for well actually all the library series was carbon filtered because we were working with strong spirits and that's just how they did it and i mm-hmm. didn't know any better yeah like I, I mean it's all been a learning process <laughs> um and then with our current flagship which is our green wax rye orange wax bourbon I think it was only maybe the first two years mm. was carbon filtered. And then when I understood that you could avoid carbon filtration, uh, actually, uh, sorry, carbon filtration is not going to help you with flocculation. That was misrepresented to me. No names mentioned there. But um, once I realized that if, as long as we set the proof high enough yeah, mm-hmm. and the, that proof point, that range of like 97 to 101 just makes sense to me anyway from a, a cocktail perspective um and that it can handle ice mm-hmm. if you want to drink it on the rocks we just moved to that what um my other big question for you guys <laughs> do we answer the first one <laughs> i think we now well, uh what's gonna change like when or will, will bourbon will will it have its moment i believe well here's what i believe my job and i think it's the job of anyone who has a point of view is every time you get on a podcast or you walk into a bar, or you walk into a store, I just mention it. Say, we don't chill filter, we don't mm. filter at all, here's why. And so it's just, you know, I think when Del McGay became popular, I don't think people even knew oh, how many species of agave are. You know, it's right. just all right. education. Right. Yeah. And so I think that if, if there are enough brands that have a motivation to explain a point of view mm-hmm. about filtering, then eventually, I don't know how long it would take. You would have enough people because the bartenders are the gatekeepers. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, um, 
And so you have to get them to buy in. I think the, the retailers are, um, I say this with no negativity, the retailers are, I would think, are purely commerce-based, hmm. right? So some retailers are, and there aren't many of them, are really, really particular. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And they're, but most retailers, even if they have a point of view, would kind of say, if this even if I don't like barrel finishes, this particular thing is popular. And if it's going to make me money and keep people coming to my store, then I will put yeah. it on the shelf. And I don't, I'm, it's a business. Like yeah. I don't judge it. Um, but the bartenders, the good bartenders, I think of as truly gatekeepers. Yeah. And they really will say, get that out of here. Like that doesn't like belong it. here. Yeah. And I have no use for this. Or I can't support it because of this. And I think if enough of them learned about the process mm -hmm. of how different whiskeys are made they might have a different point of view i mean there's so many economic factors that go into what do you have behind your bar obviously we've been talking about but the even that's the cost the rising cost of rent these days in real estate to go into sure. how can a crafts place which i think is also a very shallow term yeah. not just in our industry with whiskey and spirits but also when you take it over into the bar space or even to retail and say we're a craft shop yeah. or a craft bar and then you look in the back bar and you're like, oh, you've been bought out by Buffalo Trace. Yeah. Like, that's all you have is Sazerac products back there. And like, cool, you can sell like all these craft beers. You can sell like a craft tequila and a craft mezcal into a cocktail. And then you're just using crappy whiskey. And I had this conversation at a craft place with a bartender very recently. He's like, yep. we just use this because it's cheap. But like, I would want to put your product in here. It's the same price, but it actually stands up in a cocktail better. Like, okay, well, why aren't you doing that with everything on your cocktail menu then? Correct. Like, what, what, where, where did that go? Is it all about money? Is it all about resources? I think there's also a little bit of like a political atmosphere that's happening in the bar scene too, um, with people about these are some really cool products coming from international places. Let's support people that don't look like us. And that's a whole different conversation sure. we're going to avoid right now, um, where bourbon has that, oh, it's the old white guy mentality to it. And don't, I mean, it's a very long argument com or not argument, but just a long, uh, very diverse conversation to have that can go in many different angles, which I don't really, I will say this though, as the co-founder of a brand that has a horse on the label, right? <laughs> I mean, even though there's a lot more to what we do than that, yeah. I think we're trading on the most common perception, you know, 99, we said 1% of people are enthusiasts. The other 99% who even are aware that there's a product called bourbon think that it can only be made in Kentucky. And Kentucky is known for bourbon, basketball, and horses. You know, I don't know if that's the correct order, but those <laughs> Let's go with it. Those I three, think that's good order. Those yeah. three things. So, and Callum O'Donnell. <laughs> and it's Southern mm -hmm. at its core, yeah. right. right? And then all the other stuff we talked about. Um, so, yeah, it has, I think for those of us who like bourbon and maybe have always been around it in some way, shape or form, or have been around it for a while, we think about it or sorry, we probably don't think about it, mm. but the image of bourbon is somehow like old white yeah. Southern guy. <laughs> like so, that's, that's like, that's, and but, I don't think we think about that much, but probably a lot of the bartenders think about it yeah. that way too. They're just like, and eh, I bourbon, counter my you know. point by saying, as in a bar yesterday, talking to a bartender, and he was telling me how a, uh, I think it was a gin came in, and they're like talking about how it's a woman owned gin distillery, mm -hmm. and he's like, 
that's cool. I don't really care. He straight up told her that. I heard her say that to him say that to her because he's like, I can't explain that to my customers when I have 35 people deep behind the bar and we're making cocktails. Like, it's a really great and that's really cool, but I'm not going to buy your product just because of that. And that was definitely the hitting point they were trying to, to harp on. He's mm. like, but then he came back and told me, he's like, well, it's also for me, it's going to cost me $28 to buy this bottle of gin. That's a retail price of gin, not for a bar yeah. to buy. He's like, it's too expensive too. You know, it's, so you can have like these uh, foundations of your company that you think are unique and different, but people at the end of the day just want to taste something good and they, they can afford it. So I think to answer the question of like, will or when will bourbon have that sort of craft, you know, will will Bullet and the Jack and Jim's of yeah. the American Be perceived as Patron, yeah. at least from a bartender perspective. Well, there's also the, I think the just the cultural aspect or the part that it's from the United States is so massive because in, in the same vein in Scotland, you go into a bar in Scotland, mm-hmm. a craft bar, you know, and I know we keep using that, but to just to reiterate, yeah. you go in a craft bar in Scotland and, you know, they'll have like, you know, I was in a bar in Scotland recently and they had Koval. You know, and they like all these different, like really mm. kind of obscure bourbons or obscure American whiskeys, um, and um, the, no bullets, no Jack, mm. no Jim right, yeah. of these the American whiskeys, yeah. and none of it across. However, Scotch, they did have famous grouse. Yeah, Johnny Walker Red Label. Yeah, Johnny Walker Black. I felt like they had to have it, and for some reason, I think that I. Th- for that reason, I think that it will never happen in the United States. Mm. That even the craft bars, they're going to have to have one or two of the, 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 the patrons of the American whiskey yeah. world, if you like. You know? I have I have so many burning questions for you guys. Okay. That yeah. fascinate that I think about a lot, and I think you guys have some of the answers. We've covered that one. My other one is, <laughs> I think, aside from water. <laughs> Which some people prefer at room temperature, uh-huh. and some people like with ice, as we know. Um, I'm more of a room temperature water person. Whoa! Um, Whoa. But most <laughs> breaking, news. I would say all the other beverages have a temperature mm. that is considered ideal, and actually most food does too, right? It's like a salad should be cold, but then this is the type of thing salad you might serve at room temperature, and these things are supposed to be hot. Bourbon is being consumed neat Mm. by most people. And I would say American room temperature, which is like 79 degrees, I would argue is not a good temperature to consume anything other than water. (laughs) If you're a room temperature water person, I just don't think it's, I'm putting this in my Instagram profile, by the way. Yeah. Room temperature drinker. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think, I think, you know, whiskey is volatile, especially at a higher proof. I think the volatility hits you more at a higher temperature at room room. temperature. Yeah. And I don't understand the unwillingness to have a cube. How big? (laughs) (laughs) We won't get the sizes of cubes. I don't care. Uh, I would take ice of any shape or size. I don't. Is this hand cut? (laughs) I think that even though you wouldn't think of bourbon as refreshing, I just think that every and to Chris's nice summer thing where we were nice enough to be included. Hey. I think some bourbons can be can have more of a brightness and a TV freshness, star. you know, for sure. Um, but I think the temperature wants to go down, and I wonder when 
people are going to... I don't think it's the best way to enjoy American whiskey is my point. It's, a, I, it's a really good question. And, because... it's, it's, and I think, and, and I think you're the person to answer this. I think that it's related to scotch. Yeah, I think I that people say. incorrectly perceive that single malts are only consumed neat. And I think, isn't there a lot of adding of both water and ice oh, in yeah. Scotland? More water than ice? Uh, yeah, more water. water right. sure. but, but the water's chilling it. And, and also, obviously, dropping the proof. And... I think there's a weird snobbery based on nothing. <laughs> I was going to say, where <laughs> do you think you it comes shouldn't from? Drink. Right? I think it comes from scotch. I think so, it's a weird trickle down. And I think the idea that you shouldn't be drinking that real bourbon connoisseurs drink their bourbon neat, irrespective of proof, is garbage. What we need to do is recreate a Mad Men series where they're drinking whiskey consistently, but always drinking it on the rocks. That's how they need to. Yeah. That's how we infiltrate. Or they, and Don Draper needs to be say. Here's the, the reason thing, I use a cube. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thing though, I was listening to a podcast two years ago. <laughs> thing though, um, nine months of the year in Scotland when you're drinking ambient whiskey, room, at ambient room temperature. room temperature is cool. It's very cool. That's what I always said to people. I was like, the ambient like room temperature six, in Scotland is very much cool. lower. The, so yeah. you have to have the heat, like, um, and you know, if you're, the heat has to be blasted nine yeah. months of the year in Scotland for yeah. people to be comfortable. In America, it's completely different. In Kentucky, especially, or like anywhere south of that line, nine times out of ten during the year, it's going to be it. This mid seventies, mm-hmm. high seventies in Fahrenheit. You know, in Scotland, during the year, if you don't have the heating on, it's going to be like. 62 60 yeah. by the way chris i don't know where you kept this but i actually find this to be a nice temperature this is very not delightful it's a nice temp but mm-hmm. i think look white red wine 60 degrees people would say if, if you went to a, a restaurant and they served you a, a good restaurant and you got served room temperature red wine you would complain mm-hmm. and you might even say can you put this on ice for me white wine i mean the the argument with wine is that white wine is always served too cold and red wine is served too warm and if you serve white wine too cold you can't taste anything right and you're talking about something that's 12 percent, 13 percent abv so bourbon's more intense so i think it can handle the cold yeah, yeah. right and still be intense like you're not going to lose the flavor and it's a volatility thing as well the volatility yeah. i think yeah. you have to calm the volatility mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I can't say I do it consistently, maybe because I'm too lazy or I don't think about it. I'm probably more prone to use ice, but I do keep glasses in the freezer. Mm-hmm. And if you take, it's funny to me, like, I, I don't, I find the idea of the stones disgusting for some reason. Yeah. I can't explain it. Or just like a, they aren't, isn't there also like a stainless steel ball? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. mean to knock other people's products, but I just, it seems <laughs> gross to me for some reason. I get you. <laughs> I don't mean to knock other people's products, but hold my beer. <laughs> That's disgusting. Uh, but if you keep a glass in the freezer, and I've, it, I have a, you know, from cooking, I have an Insta-read thermometer. You can drop your whiskey from 80 degrees to like 50 degrees mm-hmm. just by pouring it into a chilled glass. I'm going to start doing that. And it makes, you were saying volatility. You've got to tamp the vol- And yeah. I don't, I almost don't trust when people are tasting, oh, this whiskey seems hot. This whiskey seems this. It's like, well, I don't know. Are you drinking 80 degree whiskey out of a warm glass? Right. A lot of things are going to seem hot in that environment. Well, so I don't think it's in the same way that I don't think you could appreciate a really high quality red wine at mm-hmm. 75 degrees. Is there a temperature <laughs> you think is, is I don't know. ideal? For I think we, I'm going to, I'm going to work on it and decide. <laughs> gonna, it's like, I'm going to yeah. go down this, my this gut, too. It's a whole new gut, Instagram thing. My gut would be 
that you need to get it down to the 65 to 70 degree range at least. Yeah. But just to be enjoyable too, yeah. who other than water, what is it that you want hitting your palate at yeah. room temperature? What what beverage does anybody consume other than water at room temperature? I, and, I mean, I drink a lot of soda. Milk. Cooler. But um, one thing I was going to say is we, Jake and I have had this before where, you know, my favorite way to enjoy a lot of single malts, yeah. whether it's scotch or not, yeah. is in a highball. Mm-hmm. And I want it to oh, be... Interesting. I want it to be tall glass. I want it to be really fizzy water. And I want it to be cold as fuck. Yep. Like, interesting. And sometimes, I, sometimes you know, when we're, we're talking to people like that, they're like, wait, what are you doing? You people know, and I just think... I just think it really brings out the notes of whiskey. And I think yeah. a lot of people have, you're totally right. A lot of people have this thing about it cooling it down. I'm like, obviously don't put your whole bottle in there, but I think, yeah, like you want to be between, I think 65 is a good, seems like a 60s. good temp. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're right. Cause in ha- I've been doing secretly a little investigation and yeah. science project for myself, not really science project, but just taking <laughs> count of people. A I, survey. So I order highballs when I'm out visiting accounts. That's what I, my drink is. It, it, like you said, for all the reasons of drinking it refreshing that way, especially in the summertime, but it also allows. And you'll you, get what you think one point five ounces of whiskey. Yeah, the two at most. And then what are you getting? Like three or four ounces of at least. Yeah, three, at four, least. Yeah. Um, and, and dilute, stay hydrated. It's, yeah, yeah. Stay, stay hydrated. It dilutes it's a good, it. Yeah. I'm not getting. I'm not probably even gonna finish it because it's gonna be diluted at the very end. I have to drive for my job. All those responsibility efforts to it. But what I've been tracking is how many bartenders don't know what a highball is. They don't even know. And what would you say percentage wise? I'm right now at 44.3. Okay. <laughs> um, I <laughs> 44.3 no uh, or don't. Know. Yes. I would say I would say no. about it's around half of pe- half of the bartenders know how to make a highball. Where other people ask me, do you want soda in it? What is that? Um they ask me, how do you want it? Because they don't know what to make it with. Mm. Or get those really special places that pull out a Collins glass that's already oh, chilled. God. And then they pull out that long yeah. bit long, of ice. Yeah. And you're thinking, oh my as God. As much as I hate And you're it, only going to get two and a half, three ounces of soda max. When oh I see a Suntory, Suntory highball machine or Jim Beam highball machine at a place, I'm like, okay, like I'm going to order my product with it. But I know how you're going to make actually a good highball. Yeah. So A quality product in that yeah. sense. I mean, what I wonder with bourbon is I would think it's not a good way to drink an aged product. In a highball? a highball? I would think that it would bring out all the wood notes, but I would be curious to try it because I haven't I, tried. I use your bourbon for a highball. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But like, the, I mean, this everything we have here except for this is relatively young. So that would make sense to me. I would wonder, one of the worst whiskeys I tasted was 13-year-old MGP at 87 proof. Like when huh. you get age on it and then proof it down and you proof it down i think the proof helps drive the other flavors but when you take away the proof you just get not wood you just yeah. get the wood yeah. you just get wood the worst so. whiskey i ever had was a sheep dung smoked icelandic whiskey <laughs> sheep dung I smoked saw, i actually I buy, just buy read about that the other day i think <laughs> me and this other dude from italy were sitting there to this bar drinking these 40 dollars drams oh my gosh like i regret everything about this choice so can we let's i, I want to talk yeah, about this please. whiskey yeah because I, this whiskey to me represents when I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so what is it? So like this it. is, so the original Pinhook, and I say the original is a different bottle shape. Um, we had no notion of building a brand. We had no notion of scalability. Was every, it was actually the original vertical series, even though it wasn't called that. So we had bought 
three-year-old barrels and we spent three years thinking about how we're gonna like what are we doing like what's our and the vintage thing i knew from day one because with my wine background that's right. what made sense to me and it's what didn't make sense about bourbon to me we'll make vintages like why do we have to have a flavor profile right mm-hmm. but the original idea was each release was a new wax color and a new horse so mm-hmm. we did seven releases that way seven wax colors seven different horses the each each release was maybe six months apart give or take and it was all the same lot of barrels so each release was six months older than the prior hmm. give or take right the big learning for me was multifold. one was when i did the first blend i wasn't trying different barrel combinations because the way whiskey had been explained to me or american whiskey even as the owner of a bourbon bar was there's no the the different flavor profiles with the same mash bill are being driven by rickhouse placement Mm -hmm. the microclimates not this idea which i've come to learn it sounds dumb but i didn't know that five barrels filled on the same day aging next to each other can taste drastically different Mm -hmm. because i didn't have the experience and i just had the information that had been given to me which was you know limestone filtered water makes horses bones strong and blah 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 (laughs) And the rolling hills and the, the magic hills. of most of the hills. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> the original, so the first seven releases, there was no intentionality around which barrels would be blended together. So now what we do is we always pull more samples than we're blending. So if I do a hundred barrel blend, we'd pull 130 samples. And so we're playing around with combinations yeah. of which there are many, 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 yes. right? Um, we break them down based on lot number into 10 barrel blocks. So equal parts of 10 barrels goes into a new sample bottle. And now we've consolidated 130 to 13. Now you have something manageable, but if you're doing 10 blocks or hundred barrels and you have 13 or 130, mm-hmm. even with those blocks, you have 400 possible combos of 10, right? So you have, and that's what represents Pinhook, right? Is the world of variability and celebrating a moment, th- that whiskey at a moment in time, mm-hmm. as opposed to a preconceived notion of flavor profile. So, but I didn't know any of that. So when we started the 15 barrels, if we did a 15 barrel blend were random. I mean, they weren't random cause they were all the same age okay. and they were literally the same fill date, but there was no, well, let's pull 20 barrels and then see, see which yeah. 15 tastes the best yeah. together. Less experimentation. It was just, let's we're pulling 15 barrels. We're perceiving them as all the same because they're all the same age. They've and all they, been in the same part of the wreck house. They were in a single store. They were palletized right. oh. in a single story warehouse in Barstown, Kentucky. So there was no notion of. So my thought process, based on the way it was explained to me, is well, all the barrels are the same. They're yeah. the same. Yeah, it's made been made by the bourbon robots. Um, but did you? Sorry to interrupt, but did you taste them individually? No, you we weren't. I did, but not enough. Like I wasn't doing enough side by side because, right. again. It would be very easy to be critical of me, and I would accept it, but I would blame the bourbon industry for making me believe that that wasn't even necessary. Right. Right? I, That's I'm, not how I'm it was explained to me. So shocked by this, because now the process of what you do with all the samples. It was all learned. Yeah. And that's what brings me back to this bottle, which was when I did the first blend, Bourbon Courage, I still think our best horse name ever, in our first release. Oh, come on. Urban Bourbon. Urban Bourbon. Which we're drinking now. Touche. You're just saying that because you think it's named after you. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, I don't. 
Yes. I gave this bottle to Chris as a gift because I don't, well, for obvious reasons, but I don't, I don't know if he knew that it existed. And uh, I also sent a bottle. The only other person who's ever been sent a bottle of this was Urban Meyer. And then someone later told me he was a horrible human and I felt bad for doing it. But, but he's a really good dancer. <laughs> Beautiful dancer. Um <laughs> uh, so, um, <laughs> no, someone actually shamed me for sending him a bottle. I can see because, that. But I just didn't. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Like, I do like oh, sports, but I wasn't up on like, I'm not his, following his yeah. I wasn't up life. on his personal yeah. life, so right. whatever. Um, but anyway, the first blend, <laughs> Bourbon Courage, we did taste at multiple proofs, mm. right? And I thought it tasted best at 90 proof. I think also my palate has shifted because I, I think I've tasted so much cast strength whiskey it's not so much that i I wouldn't get on this oh it's the best i appreciate the intensity of it and and the purity of it Mm -hmm. and i just say we'll leave it up to other people you can add water or ice even though most people choose not to but that's your that's your option but give you something that is really the most representative of whiskey in a barrel right at the time i think based on the market and my palate i tried it at multiple palates and i really enjoyed the whiskey at 90 proof so then because it's the only way I'd ever seen the bourbon industry work, I thought that I had picked the Pinhook's proof. Pinhook is a 90-proof mm-hmm. bourbon. And so all seven releases of the Vertical series, even though they're all six months apart, so it started with a six-year-old and ended with like a nine-and-change-year-old whiskey, which was Bourbon Resolution, which is kind of this cream-colored wax, um, were all 90-proof. Huh. What I started to realize... Again, you don't have to be a genius, but tasting, um, tasting through going back was, I would say, oh, this one is woodier. Yeah. This one is shorter. This one has a longer finish. So I was basically noticing that the age wasn't just automatically making it better, which again, it's, you can say it sounds dumb, but my impression of bourbon as a bourbon bar owner and what had been explained to me about how bourbon works was simply surely every older whiskey will taste better than the prior and since every bourbon that i had seen except for you know i mean stag was out i mean there were what years but this was we started bottling in 2014 okay so every example that i'd at least been aware of was you have a proof and you stick to your proof and so we did seven releases, all 90 proof, and it was tasting back through them where I realized that that was an error. And so that ultimately became this philosophy of not only are we, it's not enough to just say we're not trying to make it taste the same. In this case, age was the variable, but maybe adjusting the proof higher or lower yeah. will also make the whiskey the best representation of what it can be. Yeah. And so that's mistake has become the foundation of how we make all of our whiskey except for except for except for single barrels and the reason i give single barrels a pass even though i'm not a huge fan of them is (laughs) i love when i hear owners say that that. (laughs) i think the and this is why we call our single barrel program true single barrel which might sound arrogant but it's based on the idea that what you taste is what you get there's no adjustment Mm. and so that's why single barrels make sense to me if i give you three samples of three different single barrels and you make your choice nothing is there's no filtration obviously and there's no proofing so you're getting exactly what you taste 
outside of that, we always play around with the proof. And sometimes that does lead to bottling at cast strength, mm -hmm. but we've at least tried, uh, you know, on the higher proof stuff, and which is why we call it high proof, not cast strength. We'll try it at several proofs below cast strength. And sometimes 120, but it'll taste better at 116. And so we bottle at 116. What, where did you finally get off the idea that you had to have a proof point? Was I think taste? it was really just the tasting of the vertical series and then realizing that, well, we're already making our lives complicated by having a new horse and a new vintage. <laughs> so we already have to submit a new cola yeah. anyway. Yeah. So why do we have to be beholden to a proof? We already are not trying to make right. a consistent product. We're trying to make a vintage. And it was really just the realization once I started tasting it of how different hmm. a whiskey can taste. I, I did a blend recently. Um, I really am enjoying that we're not being promotional, but I'm going to go ahead and promote something. Yeah. Um, our next collaboration is coming out. Oh. Um, we bought 25 barrels of Still Austin. Heck yeah. When it was three years old. I really think they're making high quality whiskey. I'm fascinated by how mature it is without, for its age, without tasting overly woody. Yeah. Right. It doesn't taste over extracted. It just tastes older than it, it is. It still tastes like yeah. Texas too. Um, so I bought, we bought, uh, 25 barrels and I worked with Garrett Oliver, who's the brewmaster for Brooklyn brewery. Mm -hmm. And we did a 20 barrel blend. So we sat, I broke them into, it's a little unwieldy if you have too many. So we put them in two barrel blocks. Okay. So we whittled it and we had one single barrel. And then that way we only were working with 13 samples instead of 25 samples cool. to figure out the best 20 yeah. barrel combo. Um, he's so I mean, that guy, amazing cook, knows so much about wine, mm -hmm. obviously, literally <laughs> wrote the, whatever, that world atlas of beer or whatever, mm -hmm. the encyclopedia. Yep. The guy knows everything and has an incredible palate. And I really was just, I was just like, Garrett, blend away. So the were the barrels in New York? We the samples were there. We we left them in Texas the entire time. Okay. So it's being released as a four year product. I think it tastes like a seven year whiskey. Wow. I think the SRP will be around a hundred dollars because I think it tastes yeah. like a hundred dollar whiskey. But yeah. more importantly, Garrett founded the Michael Jackson Foundation, not the singer, uh, but the, <laughs> the, the beer, beer writer. Yeah. The beer guy. And the the purpose of the foundation is to create scholarships for people of color to learn how to either distill or brew. Oh, cool. Um, and so uh, we haven't done all the math, but a large percentage of our proceeds will go to Very the cool. MJF. Awesome. Um, and so I feel like, I think the $100 price point, I think when you taste it, you would say it's warranted because it tastes like $100 whiskey, which I think is important, yeah. actually. It's a very limited release right. as well. And it will be small. Um, but I think most coming? importantly, it'll come out, I think, November. Oh, okay. perfect. I'll be in Austin in first week of November. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so we'll, I think it'll be, I mean, Breeze, the idea is to really make it a Breeze moment and say, you know, which is our text to buy platform so that anybody who's on there can get a bottle. Yeah. So we're going to default to that. And then we'll say, we'll see what's left and whatever's left will go out. Well, presumably some to Texas and, and to a limited number of markets. Um, but Garrett did the blend. This gets back to actually to the proofing thing. I did have a point. Uh, Garrett did the blend and honestly that's I've blended with a lot of like I'll, I love inviting people to be part of the blending process 
he was just so sure. Like he tried one blend mm-hmm. and he's like, I'm going to remove this and put in this and that's going to fix it. Mm. And the second blend was lights out. <laughs> I mean, he really has blended a lot and has worked with spirits. So it's mm-hmm. not just, he doesn't just blend beer, but he really knows. And he was done. And it was 119.87 proof. And I dropped it by one degree. No. And he was said, it's so much better. Oh, really? Wow. I don't know if he said it's so much better. Maybe he just said it's way better or it's better. <laughs> yeah. But we we are bottling it one proof point below. Below cask strength. Which, think about it. I don't know if you're, if, if anyone's listening and you can try to close your eyes and imagine. Uh-huh. If you just think about proofing, there's a simple way to think about it. It's just how I have to think about it because I'm bad at math. If you take 100 milliliters, right? Think about a 750 milliliter bottle. You take 100 milliliters of whiskey at cast strength and you add exactly one milliliter of water, Mm -hmm. you will drop it by one proof point. Hmm. So think about how little... Oh, yeah. Water that is. Two drops. I mean, it's. I I don't even know if I would say to someone... I took a cast strength product and diluted it. I mean, it, it the water is so nominal yeah. that... Couldn't you technically call that barrel proof? I think you could. Because yeah, you, you could. have like a two degree yeah. leeway, I think you can. Think. Yeah. It's just not... I think that particular product, the collaboration series, it's not on the label. Yeah. And so it'll just say hmm. 118.67 or yeah. whatever it is. And I don't know if someone's like, oh, I wonder if it was 122 and it got dropped or whatever. I don't even know if anyone cares well, at that if they're point. they're listening to Key in the Lake, now they know. Now they know. Now we they dropped know. it one point. Um, it's out there. But what, yeah, the, 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 if you taste through your blends, like we do even for flagship, and you taste it 97 through 101, which, as yeah. I said before, is the range, you'll see. Yeah. Hmm. It, it, it makes a huge difference. And by the way, I mean, I think the this year's, 100 proof was the softest at 100 it tasted sharper it like the the lower it it's all about i think again the science is my weakness but the solubility mm. of the different cogeners etc yeah at different proofs varies absolutely and so you're tasting and that's my other reason why i advocate for tasting with ice is because <laughs> you're going to taste it, it's the closest thing you'd get to a wine opening up in the glass. You're going to mm-hmm. taste, you're constantly going to be tasting a different whiskey. I think it's more interesting. Yeah. And your end result might be, I don't want to add ice to this whiskey, right? But you're going to have an experience. Um, and y- you might find that the whiskey tastes sharper at a lower proof. The mm. this, It's not just as simple as add water, make it softer. Right. Sometimes you, you add don't water know. Yeah. and yeah. you make it sharper. It does, yeah. And so I think I'm really proud of this one. The, Bourbon this Denny year, we're talking yes, about. Yes, the, the one that made it on TV. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I think at 100 proof, it is, and that's why it made your summer whiskey thing. It's very it's light on its feet. Very yeah. It's easy. Drinkable, yeah. It's quaffable, crushable. Yeah, all those. Uh, and that's and and that's the other thing where I'm honest with people too. This is a blend of three to three and a half year old barrels. It's not meant to be a mind bending after dinner sipper that will change your perspective <laughs> on American whiskey. It's just meant to be an everyday. Which pour. release is 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 that whiskey to yes. change your mind? Whiskey. Which one do you think gravitates towards that? I mean, I think that these. Um, 
these i mean we have the cox's one here i think these blends that are what are true small batch yeah i think when you have six barrels and you're doing a three barrel blend and you have 20 possible combinations if you're patient and you run through as many iterations you can make something really really good yeah Uh, you have enough variables to create something great and but you don't have so many variables that you're going to get lost. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that eight, mm-hmm. eight blends to me is really the most that I've seen anyone do because what happens is, the way I think about it is, your best blend should beat your best single barrel, hands down, no question, for obvious reasons. You're layering flavors. You have, you're building complexity. Um, so I think by the time you've tasted six single barrels, and your best single or favorite single barrel should give you a benchmark. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't take you that many blends to figure out something that exceeds that. Hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's a good, and it, I like that approach. And at right. some point, I think you also, if you taste too much, you'll get lost. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think if you taste, I think eight is still a lot, but I think at eight, you can still be remind you can still remember two yeah. blend two when you get to blend eight but the other thing that i think is so critical should we open this one yeah let's do it should we taste it please yeah. um so the other thing that i think is so critical is that um is get this guy open well, uh, even looking back to when chris and i picked one of your single barrels for a local liquor store here yeah. we had three three options two of them I think we both agreed on we liked a lot. A third one, we're like, this tastes like Pinhook, so we wanted to have something different. Yep. But I don't know if those three together would have been a good blending process. Yeah. But you and that's it- the thing that people realize in the process, right, is like sometimes your favorite single barrel can't even make the blend. Mm-hmm. And, and But what you see is... Um, and so these are... So this is the only four... It's a blend of four and five-year-old barrels, so it's the oldest Castle & Key product that we put. Okay. In the market. Um, and these are... Is that for all the true small batches? All the true small batches. Some of them have four and five in them. Some of them only have four. It depends, but it's always a minimum of age four years. Um, but hmm. when you... It's really good. When you get through... What's the proof on it? 116. Jeez, I've never... No. Yeah, this got proofed down. But I don't think even... It doesn't drink around... Hmm that at all it, it still reminds me of the 90 proof we had just a minute ago i mean but the richness and the depth compared to mm-hmm. the much older whiskey that we had while still maintaining the balance so these are my i mean for me these are a microcosm of our larger blending process right right it really is mm, yeah it's almost identical except that we when we blend larger we have a smaller percentage of extra barrels yeah um but other than that it's really a version of it let's try this let's try this oh that's what i was gonna say so what i do with even our flagship blends but especially with this and it's always really fun usually you have a group of people who are participating right and typically it works like a round table and someone will start and be like let's try barrels one three five and then you're kind of you know, you have your reference point because you've tasted the single barrels. Oh, no, that's a little short and a little hot on the nose. Okay, yeah. let's try two, four, six. And, so, and you just keep iterating. 
it's impossible not to get attached in some way either to the one that you had a hand in or mm-hmm. just in your you have an idea of like three was the best three was the best yeah. one mm-hmm. three was the best and you it's really hard to get off of it i will always make people i say make them everyone's always willing to do it blind them i'll make them blind their two or three favorites mm-hmm. typically what happens is you have a hundred percent consensus when you blind but you don't have consensus when you're not blind so people i still prefer blend yeah. two and someone's like i really five to me is really it when you remove that notion remove that attachment and you remove the attachment it's a perfect word from the equation you tend to get more consensus in terms of what's the best whiskey and i love that because i blind myself mm-hmm. even on flagship because i might have a notion of which blend is my favorite or which mm-hmm. proof is my favorite and they say fine i'm torn between 98 and 100 proof let's blind them yeah you know and and look sometimes it's it's hard not to get caught up in trying to figure out which is which you, yeah. you have to remove yourself from that but i think what's really easy is you put them next to each other and you just right off the bat you're like okay whatever the first one is on the left has a better nose period end of story it's not even an argument anymore but for some reason you can't see that when you're nosing them when you're nosing them knowing which is which, yep. it's really, really hard. It's hard to separate the bias. It's hard to separate the bias. Yeah. And that's so you and but I think if I'm trying to pat Pinhook on the back, I think that's our best contribution is trying to make a whiskey that has no bias. Mm. Right? Mm. I mean, granted, in the end, I suppose the bias is that it's my palate, but philosophically you're not trying to steer it in any direction. At the end, the best whiskey wins. Mm-hmm. You blind it, and you're not saying, well, I hope I pick the 97 proof because if I pick 101, then, you know, we'll get less whiskey, you know, <laughs> or, or then I can never back off 101. Right. You try to go in totally agnostic and just pe- let the best whiskey win. Well, it seems like that's what you're. Well, you weren't necessarily doing that. This is great. It is really great. I love this. this. Is, I'm sorry. This is one of my favorite. No, I was, I was, as I'm sitting here drinking this, I'm like, this is one of my favorite pin hooks. Yeah, these, 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 these to me. This is. I, I think we've done a really shitty job promoting this. I don't think anyone knows what they to are. understand it. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we've talked. What is true small batch? And again, I'm like, I'm having fun with obviously the fact that small batch has no definition. Yeah. But saying, I think if you're only blending three to five or seven it's barrels, yeah, I think we can all batch. agree that that's what a small batch is. Tim, this Ben Ripper helped me explain that a this lot. This is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is. It's there's just like cinnamon note on it the, on the nose. That reminds me of Big Red. Then you get into yeah, it, it is it, very. You're right. But then it's, like but then rich. it's not. Yeah, yeah, rich and caramel to it. Oh. This is one of the, probably, this might be the best of the true small batches I've had. I haven't, tried, I haven't tried the Molloy's yet, um, no, I collaboration. Really batch. I have a bottle of it, but I haven't opened it yet. I forgot I actually bought it. Um, Steve reminded me of it. Which This, I, I think I can say this because in a way I was blending with other people, although I do, to be fair. Do you always go to the blending? Oh, 100%. To- yeah, we won't do it. You have, so here's the reality. I don't think you can do it. You can't do it virtually. Yeah. No. And so we only, so I either, so we've done a few of them that are for a market. So it's like Tennessee and Georgia are getting one and it's just, I did a blend Mm. and it's more, will be a limited item and they'll spread it around. Uh, But most of them are done in person. Um, And you have to do the proofing piece as well. Yeah. And I don't like it. I think it defeats the purpose 
I either want to do it in person or not at all because I don't think you can get it the first year because of COVID. This is the second year we've done it last year because of COVID. I sent four blends to people, but then it's almost like picking a single barrel and nobody, you don't, you don't get it unless you're there. Yeah. When, when you're sitting there and you go, let's try one, three, five. The biggest advice I give to people is try to find two anchors and only switch the third Mm. because if you have too many variables you'll get turned around and you don't know what's doing what because sometimes you can't figure out is it the removal of that barrel or the addition of the barrel right you can't figure out and sometimes what you'll figure out is like you'll try to use let's just call it barrel one in a bunch of blends and then you'll do a blend without barrel one and you'll say it's almost the absence of barrel one that's making things better as much as mm. it's the addition of other things. So you don't, you, I, you have to isolate the variables, I think, to make a really good blend. But when people see that, mm-hmm. if you do it in person, I don't care. I've, what I've found, and I've gotten really nice compliments from people who said, you know, someone who does this a ton for a huge national um, chain of stores even though he said at Makers he got picked up in a limo and there were some other nice perks, <laughs> he was saying that he thought that the, whatever they, what's their thing, Small Batch Select? Yeah. He was saying Small Batch Select and this are my two favorite things. Yeah. From an experience standpoint, just saying, yep. oh, wow, I'm really understanding. But I think the thing that makes this better than Makers, oh. if I can say this, oh. <laughs> is you're actually tasting the thing. You have six yeah. Yeah. single barrel yep. samples yep. and it, they're not representative they're the actual thing. Yep. The only variable, and although we haven't run into it much because we get our barrels from Speyside in Ohio and they're laser cut staves, so mm. we haven't seen a lot of leaking. But the variable would be that you don't know the fill levels. Yeah. It's because you're blending one to one to one. Right. Right. You're blending equal portions of three barrels. Yeah. And you don't know uh, yes. from an evaporation standpoint. So that's the one. With makers? No, with, with us. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'd say with makers, the variable is you're not blending. They give you representative samples. Try it. This is what this stays like. They're giving you a representation of each stave profile. Each profile, but it's not the actual product. In this case, I love, you know, we're still there. We're small enough. I can say this is why we're better than makers because makers (laughs) doesn't give a shit. They're a $17 billion (laughs) company. Um, But I think what's cool about it is now there's the one variable that said, I haven't seen it backfire. I, I don't know how much whiskey is in each barrel. Right. They get dumped. They get dumped. It's 100% of the three barrels, and you don't know. <laughs> in, in you're, you're blending from samples, so you're blending five milliliters, five yeah. mil, five mil, five mil. Right? But would so you it's think exact. that bias comes back when the barrel, when it's bottled? They're like, I don't care. I made this. I'm proud of it. Yeah, probably. But I also haven't, the interesting I mean, thing, really and good. it's true so it of all out. of our blending is that way. It's the one thing we can't control yeah. is like, let's say I did the vertical blending. We had, <laughs> so this one's going to be really funny. So we do our big horse, which is our, it's the only barrel pick that I do. I picked a barrel and I was like, this barrel is lights out. Like, I don't know what is up with this barrel. I love it. So first thing, it was 103 proof. Hmm. which is bonkers at cast strength yeah. barrel entry 120 i was just gonna say it went down so that's a wow huge there were only four six packs 
of whiskey. Where, where is that being so, aged at? Wow. At Castle and Key. Castle and Key. But yeah. I think that, I mean, that has to be a leak when you're seeing that level of, of loss. Yeah, you would think that was a leak. It had to be a leaky but barrel. But still, that's a huge a drop, drop in proof. A huge yeah. drop in proof. But I think that would be explained by, I mean, yeah, I, guess I don't less know if more oxygen, I don't know if it, that's a good point. I, I don't know. I mean, I think in general, we're losing proof at Castle and Key because they it's cold. Yeah. Right. So lower temperature, you eva- evaporate alcohol instead of water and so we're mostly seeing drops in proof but anyway that was so it did make me think so this year the vertical blend was 130 barrels and so it made so we're doing the exact same process now we're building 10 barrel blocks so i think we had 17 blocks so we pulled 170 barrels to blend 130 um and we were super happy with the blend, but you know, I think with 130 barrels, I guess even three empty barrels is a relatively small percentage. Yeah. Um, but it's always a factor. So when I started, I guess my point is when I started seeing, we had a, an addition to the barrel that I picked, we saw some other light barrels this year, yeah. like 11 cases. Have you ever seen one where the barrels were too empty and you bundled them together and the flavor? Not with this. Okay. Not, the Not small with batch. the small batch. And again, I think it's the laser cut staves and I don't know, I don't know much about, you know, MGP and I, I mean, I presume they source from independent state mm-hmm. and, yeah. you know, and Kelvin and probably lots of different people. And I, I don't really know what goes on there, but we definitely saw in the single barrels this year, the average was about 31 six packs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some that were 33 and there were some that were 29. Okay. And some that were twenty seven. Oh, yeah, it's like a range, close. but yeah. in the range. Yeah. And then there was the ran the one that I picked, another one that was eleven <laughs> six packs, so a third of the yeah. average. Jeez. Um, so anyway, it made me think when you're doing the blend. Well, the single barrels are from the same lots. And those are seven years old. Seven years old. Yeah. So the single barrels are from the same lot. So I'm like, how much is it going to fuck up our blend if a bunch of these barrels? But I will say. It's never backfired, meaning right. I don't know that I would say the seven-year blend tastes identical to the the bench blend that yeah. we did from yeah. samples. Right. Yeah. And I, frankly, I don't even taste them side by side. That's not really <laughs> um, not something that I do. Yeah. But it tastes great. And this tastes great. That's, yeah. And that's I don't remember. Time. I did a lot of these, so I can't say. I remember doing the blend. Yeah. Like I remember sitting in the yeah, room, yeah. and I remember thinking that we did a really good blend. But I don't. I taste too much of our oh, yeah. whiskey to say. Oh, I remember when we sat down with the guys from Cox's and, and yeah. like that. And I have, I have sixty single barrels to sell, and like I remember, like a handful yeah. of them stand out, and that usually for the different reasons. We're using a lot of different wood, but this has kind of a minty mint for sure. I was gonna say, and the cinnamon thing. It's really, really, really good. It's just Very really good, good it. whiskey. It's tasty, you know. Like this it's is, excellent. and I think this is. How's the temperature on it? Mm. <laughs> that's cool down here so. it's cool down here i mean i wish we had an insta i bet this is 70 degrees um the probably the whiskey tastes 70 to yeah, me like it doesn't say. taste warm it's, it's i think it's cool a nice down temp. here yeah i mean i was tasting we've had a conversation about high proof this whole time um i was tasting a booker's release at 126 ish and then uh green river i was drinking them side by side the mm-hmm. other night and i'm like it was a hot night it was 80 degrees whatever but it's cool down in this basement 
I'm like, God, I love Booker's. It's my favorite whiskey, but right now having a 90 proof whiskey is much more <laughs> enjoyable than sitting on this Booker's. But I will say, chewing on it. I will say, and it just sounds like I'm trying to pat myself on the back. If someone told you this was 98 proof, you wouldn't say they were lying. The true back? True this one. Oh, yeah. It's not. No, I mean, oh, maybe I, you would argue because it's. Reaction, but it doesn't. proof point on it. There's no. I didn't think it was over on the nose. And especially on the nose. There's a refreshing quality to everything about this, like from the beginning to the sip to the end. It's bright somehow. It yeah. is bright. That, that But it's rich. I mean, I think it would someone who likes a big whiskey would also not be unhappy because I think it's balanced, but it hits I mean, it has that mouthfeel. It has the mouthfeel. It does. It has that great texture and it has a richness and depth. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with all of that. I think it kind of comes back around and encapsulate everything we've been talking about in this conversation about enjoyable whiskey is right in this glass. I said last last night when we were doing the thing at um at a burger social, and they they're I, actually I would love to do a side by side. Honestly, even though I tasted that last night, it, it would. Be I really... have a I have a bottle. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> Should we do side by side? Yeah, let's do it. I'll get it. I'd out. I'd be yeah. super curious. Yeah. But I was saying last night, I said um. What I liked about it, and I think you could say the same thing about this, is there's a village in Burgundy called Jevershemberton, right? And so Burgundy in wine is all about real estate. Mm-hmm. So villages and vineyards get the basically are have status. Yeah. So if your Grand Cru is the highest level, Premier Cru is under that, um, then you have village level. And then you just have like Bourgogne Rouge, which means that the grapes would have to come from somewhere in Burgundy. If you're at village level, they have to come from the village. If you're at the Premier Cru level, it is a specific vineyard site that was identified as Premier Cru, but Grand Cru is the highest level. So what they basically figured out over you know hundreds and hundreds of years was these particular plots of land are capable of producing a superior yeah. grape. Yeah. Right? Maybe it's not as cold down here as I thought it was. The um, wax is... Oh, the wax? Really? Yeah. I haven't seen this lately. The, wa- the wax has generally been behaved really well. That t- Can I see this? Yeah. This is the first one I've seen of this. The tab's not... Oh, there you oh, go. There you go. I cut it loose for you. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for the help. Um, so, um, anyway, Jevre 10 is a village that is known for producing um, really... Uh, for for Burgundy, um, wines that are well. So, all right, sorry, I'm going around and around. I'm gonna get to the punchline. Jeverschambertin is always they would call it in wine the iron fist in the velvet glove. Ooh, iron fist in the velvet glove, which I fucking love. Sounds like I Game of that. Thrones, like TV. it sounds Game of Thrones, but the notion of it is power wrapped in finesse mm. serena williams serena williams <laughs> yeah exactly so i think that that's what these are at their best to me is the iron fist and the velvet glove right you i you want power yeah you want intensity you want the iron fist but then you want it to be wrapped in a level of elegance and finesse yes i love that that's an absolute great way to measure whiskey this, um, measure anything but am i crazy or am i getting like a single malt feel to this i was gonna say that and I this get, is bigger i haven't tasted it yet but the nose on it i'm 
I would totally agree with the single malt on the nose. And it this is also, a beast. Also, like a beast of mm. bourbon. Whereas the Cox's was the big red, this is like. I get like a yeast donut. Oh yeah, on the nose. More of a confection and. Yeah. Yeah, on the nose, you're like, you know, you really could be like, what is this? A citrus glazed donut? Mm. It's huh. lemony. Lemony is for sure. Mm. Huh. It's like a key lime pie. Key lime pie, huh? But a key lime pie. So, our our signature, uh, no, maybe our signature right dessert at my restaurant, Char Number Four, was actually a homemade butter pecan ice cream. Mm. We said mm. butter pecan, but it was actually mm. pralines that were broken up and folded into the into the ice cream base. Mm. And we, and <laughs> this will sound dumb. It was the best dessert in the world. It was just homemade butter pecan ice cream, and we poured a shot of Old Crow on top of it. Yeah. Ah. Love that. And that, I mean, if you haven't had bourbon and ice cream together, right. as oh. dumb as it sounds, no. just you're really missing out. Um, but the other dessert that we did, Man, this and is... you all will appreciate this because this was a very common uh I think a note that comes up in bourbon. It was a key lime pie. And then we put homemade, I guess you would just call it marshmallow on top. But it, I mean, if anyone knows how to make marshmallow, it's just like beating egg, egg whites and sugar, right? Mm. I mean, you can yeah. make, make your own yeah. marshmallow fluff or whatever, or meringue or whatever you want to call it. And we would, on top of the key lime pie, right? Yeah. With the marshmallow and then blasted it with a, um, propane torch yeah uh -huh. get the marshmallow toasty mm -hmm. marshmallow but this to me is like i can see like that flavor profile matching a little so bit what here. i'm saying is like i'm going it's i think i don't like really like tasting notes and i'm i'm going more conceptual but i think what i'm trying to get at is this idea of like something bright and confectionery yeah. and sugary and oh, citrusy yeah. but with the toasty yeah, marshmallow yeah. just it, which is just the barrel yeah right? i was thinking I mean, like funnel cake like a like a crispiness to a funnel oh, cake. i love that and then like the same you see to me even though you, someone would say you guys are on totally different planes i could see either no, no i would just I, yeah. be like it's a confectionery thing exactly it's like with you, the powdered sugar you bite it exactly you bite it in the powdered sugar comes in but the powdered it. sugar is like marshmallow exactly yeah, yeah. right we're all talking about the same thing but associating it in a, a slightly different way i think 100 percent. yeah I think we're all on the same page there. Mm. Do you still need this... to, do you still need to get somewhere at one? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, you got about a twenty five minute drive. You... I think I'm. Go I think I don't think I'm going to Moreno's. That's not that far away, is it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a trek. All right. Um, but I, can we finish by saying, um, this is a much bigger. Mm. I think the Cox's is, is more. It's a softer. And granted, too, this is also 120 proof. Yep. Okay. 120.65. This was bottled at cast strength. But I don't think it's just the proof. I just think the character of this one, I think it still has a lot of finesse. But it's it's got it's much more of it's a it's a bigger, more powerful whiskey, but it still has yeah. I don't know the guys at Cox who picks this, but I know the guys at Malloy's and yeah. Garrett, yeah. Amazing Mash picked it, and that suits their profiles, I think, very nicely, what they chose. Uh, but I think there is a representation of Pinhook still in there for both of them. I wanted to know from you, why are these both representations of your distillery, even though they taste different? I think that um, when I, so I, it's important to me, like I was saying, that I'm sitting in the room. Mm -hmm. I think it's not so much, oh, I think my palate knows best. I just know the whiskey the best because I taste it so much. 
And so I'm trying, if, if someone says, I think this is really good mm-hmm. and they're not wrong, but I know that it can be better. I'm going to keep pushing. Yeah. How, how do you push it? I, it? It sounds dumb, but I would just be like, I think we can do better. I was like, this is great. I think we can do better. So I think it's my job, even though they're shaping it, is not to pick their blend for them. But I think that if it's missing something, mm-hmm. I'm going to push. Do you automatically, not automatically, but do you find out the flavor profiles pretty quickly and what you're there tasting at that table, which could be an add-in to what they like, but build more off of it? I think, so what I'm trying to push people to, and this is what I I feel like, at least with people in the industry, it's the question that I answer the most is, if Pinhook doesn't have a flavor profile, then what are you doing? And my mm. answer is, when I learned about wine, and it's what separates being a connoisseur from being a casual drinker, is you learn to taste deductively, which is analyzing the structure of a wine, irrespective of preference. So if you want to be an actual beverage professional, you need to be able to say, I hate peated whiskey personally, but I have five peated single malts in front of me and I need to, I need to essentially deductively taste them Mm. and figure out which ones I think are of higher quality. Right. And so with wine, I think wine has more components because you're looking more at acidity and tannin, not that whiskey doesn't have tannin. I think there are more elements Mm -hmm. at play but the way that I think of benchmarks of quality with whiskey or American whiskey, I would say aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate, balance, which is maybe the one that people would say that's a little wishy-washy, but I think we all know what it is, mm-hmm. which means you have complexity of flavor and you have complexity of aroma. If you have cinnamon and it's only cinnamon, then it's not balanced Mm -hmm. and it can't be complex because it's being driven by one thing. So aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate balance too, to me would be though, yes, I'm smelling all these different things, but on the nose or the palate, one thing ends up dominating. So a balance is, I think in a way folded into complexity, it's a piece Mm -hmm. of it, right? It's the idea that there are all these different things, but they're working in harmony. Mm -hmm. So you could say balance or harmony, right? Um, No wine or spirit or anything would be judged of quality if it didn't have a long finish. True. Length of finish, something that I don't think I made up, but I'd never heard anyone say it before, what I call alcohol integration, which is the way that the alcohol is interwoven, mm. right? There's no getting around. This is 120 proof whiskey. It's big, but you don't taste methanol. No, you don't t- like, you know, bad, like bad whiskey to me is, or, or it could be tequila or anything. You'll, it's almost the alcohol separated and you're like, yep. oh, it's, a, it's a, it has, for lack of a better way of putting it, a vodka note. Right? You're getting the pure alcohol. Yep. It's not woven into the fabric of the spirit. Yep. Right. I call that alcohol integration. So I'd say aromatic complexity, complexity on the palate, balance, mm-hmm. length of finish, alcohol integration. And then the other thing we talked about is texture. Right. So I would like to think, if I was being generous, that that's the goal and that what we achieve every time and it's what all the true small batches would have in common with our flagship product even though it's a less complex younger lower proof product the vertical series the high proof i'm not saying i hit it every time but if you're not trying to hit a profile and you're agnostic about some will be spicier some will be earthier some will be fruitier some will be sweeter you know it can go in many different directions 
those kind of six benchmarks of quality would be the common thread hmm. if we were successful. Hmm. And hopefully would be the common thread between Cox's and Malloy's. Yeah. Even though they're very different whiskeys. If you would say, well, they both have great noses. They both have interesting palates. I keep wanting to come back to it. What did I taste this time? What now I'm getting? Well, it's funny. I was getting this confection, but now I'm getting more vanilla. It's just like, that's yeah. what. Now I get burnt vanilla. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The, the, the thing that makes people want to pay, even though they maybe shouldn't, <laughs> you know, pay an obscene amount of money for a bottle of wine. That's what everyone's. I mean, it's funny that I, I find it weird. It's almost overlooked, right? Is you would say, why would you pay $2,000 for a bottle of wine? besides status or mm -hmm. because you can or because you've always wanted to try that wine your expectation is quality but the quality isn't it's not as simple as quality because there are things of quality that are inexpensive right, right. there are 40 dollars bottles of wine and 20 dollars bottles Absolutely. of wine that are yeah. super high quality what you're expecting and i hate to dwell on something that's like so obvious is complexity every time i smell this damn wine I'm smelling something different. Like I can't, mm. I want to keep coming. What? I just want to keep smelling it and I want to keep tasting it because I can't believe everything that's going on. Everything that's going right. on. That is the penultimate expression of something great in the world of wine, beer, and spirits is something that just makes you want to keep coming back. And it doesn't mean, you know, in certain situations, you know, it's kind of like with wine, someone would say, uh, there's another great book I would suggest everyone reads. Um, by this guy, Lawrence Osborne, and it's called The Accidental Connoisseur. Hmm. And it was basically his journey to want to understand wine. Hmm. And he goes all over the world and meets Robert Mondavi and hmm. all sorts of cool, funky people in Italy and Spain and France and America and travels all over. And, and, and this won't ruin the book for you, but it kind of ends with him on a beach somewhere drinking some local white wine that's ice cold and coming to the conclusion that like that wine in that moment is the best wine in the world the because magic. it's a lot of the magic is about place. Yeah. So I got off on a tangent, but I think it's important to acknowledge no. that wine spirits, whatever it, that's a huge part too. It just, it's, it's where you are, who you're with and oh. the experience. Oh yeah. But when you're analyzing something deductively, which is in a vacuum, no one's going to say that that wine that you had chilled on the beach at that moment when you really needed that wine and you needed that moment and you're looking out on the ocean, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that it's complex. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it's deductively a great wine. It just means that it's a in that match. moment, it was the perfect thing to drink. And that's why it was the best wine you could have in that moment. But if you're stepping back from it and just trying to analyze, you're looking for these qualities, right? And hopefully... And maybe, you know, we'll get better at it. That should be the common thread. Love that. Yeah, love that too. I think it's a, a wonderful place to close out this two-hour podcast of ours. <laughs> Jesus, Which, that was yeah. long. I, and these are in, in a good way. And these, I think now, it's funny, people, I, I can now answer the question. These are my favorite. Yeah. Not these two blends of everything we do. Even more than the vertical, uh, my favorite thing I would tell everyone Go go find a true small batch if you can, because um, I, I think that I think that I'm really seeing that when you blend on that small a scale, mm. and you have you can really tweak it in a way that you can't on a larger scale, and I think it's delivering 
even with four and five year old whiskey, I think it's delivering a really superior product. I'm really happy with it. I agree 100. percent Do you? Yeah. You no, guys I... aren't just saying that to make me feel good. <laughs> no, I was just thinking if I what if I opened these balls by myself down in this basement and started just drinking them, and then you mm. go back to your sorry the scenario about the author finishing on the beach for that perfect moment because he's having that local wine on that beach in that place. It's the shared experience. Yeah. And that in that time it was a place with a glass for that person. First time it's oh I get to drink this with the person who owns the company and helped create this idea and then help create this blend makes it even more special and chris you're special too <laughs> thank you everyone's special <laughs> everyone's special lolo you're special as well um well i appreciate your time it's been way too much but uh always Not at all. always great conversation i, I could talk all day yeah. as you guys yeah. know i talk too much but it was fun no you talked the perfect amount the uh, velvet glove of talking the velvet <laughs> The iron, the iron fist, just <laughs> nicely wrapped. Awesome. Uh, well, Chris, thanks for coming along. Callum jetted out about half an hour ago to do his day job. Um, we're all about to go do that same thing too, and yeah. have a fun day. Well, uh, Sean, appreciate it as always. Um, everybody, go out there, buy some pinhook. Look for that still Austin release coming later this fall. And you know what? Have a good rest of your day. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Cheers, everybody.